What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Flip Flop Guy podcast. I'm Andy Mokel, and I'll be your host. Our goal is to have epic conversations with people from all walks of life. There are no talking points that are off the table. It's going to get wild. We hope our guests inspire and motivate you to walk with purpose as we trudge the road of human existence. Enjoy the show. Ladigo, how you doing, man? Good. How you been, man? I've been pretty good, dude. Thanks for coming all the way down to Petaluma on a horrible, crazy, windy, rainy day. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely miserable weather outside. It is miserable, but we need the rain. And when you said you had venison stew on the... Elk audio, stew. Elk stew. Elk stew. Uh, <laughs> elk stew. When you said you had that on the pot, I'm like, hell yeah, might as well. Yeah. We could have a flip-flop, but not flip-flop weather. If we have more people, <laughs> right? Do another barbecue. Did you ever listen to the barbecue podcast? Oh, I, I got halfway through it, and I'm like, oh, man. You're I, like, I can't I, listen I, to I, this. I can't listen to this. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting flashbacks and it nightmares. Was such, a, <laughs> such a shit show. Such um, a shit show. Yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Legion OST DIY Outdoors Podcast. Today I'm sitting here with Latigo Hext, and uh, we're going to discuss growing up, you know, getting into hunting, getting involved in duck hunting, and, and being pretty efficient and prolific with duck hunting, training dogs, and... Uh, Thule elk hunting. We're going to talk about all different kinds of things. Yeah, you're a pretty accomplished man when it comes to the hunting that you've gotten to. to I've been pretty fortunate. Yeah, you know what I mean, and that's awesome, dude. So, you know, we'll start off with, dude. What do you think of the stew? Yeah, incredible. Yeah, I mean the flip flop set it off, but you followed up with a stew, and I'd have to say that's about par. Right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I keep telling this guy he needs to make a uh, cookbook. So with all his recipes in there, but he won't give out that marinade any to anybody. You know, no, I think he's gonna go to the grave with that one. Probably, <laughs> probably, unless I like package it and sell it or yeah, something. Yeah, there you go. But then you got at least all the ingredients, so then the the secret's out. Yeah. Right. Can't do that. Right. That's the problem. <laughs> exactly. You know. I don't know how my, it took me 25 years. I got it on my 25th birthday to get it from from my old man. And I don't know how long it took him to get it from my mom's old man, my grandfather. But it took my dad a long time, I'm pretty sure. I think anybody could really do their own marinade. I mean, with that, I mean, it's, it's, you just got to know your meat and how to prepare it and everything. But yeah, that was. Well, another buddy of mine, his family learned from, from the same ranch out in marshall california that my grandfather learned at and uh, we didn't know that our families had crossed paths my buddy cody and his family does it except they learned it and they do it with the original recipe that was taught on the ranch or not taught but when it was done on the ranch it was a dry rub okay and uh, i did a flip-flop at the Kuyu Garage sale, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You, you were there. I was there for the flip-flop, but I was there the day the after. Day after the day after the event. Yeah. yeah. So his cousin brought down the dry rub and their knife, which is identical to my knife mm-hmm. because that's, that's, the style. that's the style, right? And uh, the dry rub, we did the dry, we were doing marinade on my side and then the dry rub on his side and we were swapping back and forth and taste testing each other and critiquing and the whole thing is a total wild experience for me because you know here i am in dixon california with a guy that his family's been doing it as long as my family's been doing it two different recipes and the the most amazing part about their dry rub recipe is like 
the flavor is so robust in a different way. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? But like you feel it in the back, of your, you feel uh-huh. it in your throat. Like that's awesome. It was so good. It was. I mean, just talking about it, I'm salivating. <laughs> you, right? Yeah. <laughs> after, ta- the, after the elk stew, you're still salivating. <laughs> yeah. And like those were some big bulls. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Those were some big bulls. Right? <clears throat> yeah, that was the that was the Montana bull this year. Nice. I only I only got. 10 pounds of stew meat off of that elk. I could have gotten more, but... Yeah. You know, I... I 10 pounds goes a long way. I'm yeah. I'm still working on the last stew meat off my last bowl. So uh-huh. I mean, it goes a long way. How long ago was that? Uh, let's see here. At least two and a half years ago. Oh, really? Last bowl I shot, so yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, and so I guess now, since we're already talking about food, for you, because you were telling me some crazy different recipes that you have mm-hmm. in your pocket and yeah. stuff you do yeah which are like you know your signature trademark exactly. you know what i mean your, your thing um when you harvest an elk or or deer or duck or pig what's your go-to cooking dish like what do you like to cook for you and your wife you know and your family or your friends or anything like that uh, i mean for the past up to this point, we've been living off of what elk and wild game I've killed. And yeah. In the past couple of years, I haven't been able, been fortunate to harvest anything. So, freezer's getting kind of, was getting kind of bleak. So, we just pretty much are finishing off that last bull I killed a couple of years ago. But, I mean, my go-to, I mean, hands down would be, uh, I mean, my favorite dish would always be, of course, a backstrap. Mm-hmm. But, I'd have to say, elk sliders, if I'm entertaining friends yeah on a pretzel bun yeah and on a pre- pretzel buns are so good dude, if, you, if you do that little mini pretzel bun yeah with a little slider yeah cook it pretty much not medium rare but not rare yeah it's it just it it turns everybody into like oh man that's the this best is just thing delicious and then if i'm doing a duck dish kind of my signature is if i want something quick i'll do a pan sear mallard breast or sprig breast yeah Really quick, medium, rare to rare, let's set, slice it up, salt and pepper, whatever. But yeah. if I want to entertain, I'll do my duck confit uh, with the breast. Uh-huh. And I'll usually do a big, I'll put 20 breasts together, yeah. 20 whole birds, put them in there, slow cook them for eight hours, and then shred all the meat, drain the fat back into the meat. Yeah. And then I'll pull it out and I'll either do an egg roll with it. Oh, that or, sounds good. Uh, uh, a quick one my wife and I love. Uh, she's probably going to request this here pretty soon. <laughs> I just did a big batch of it, but it would be a taco with the duck meat. Uh-huh. You just take that comfy duck meat, yeah. shredded, pan sear it really quick with some taco seasoning, yeah. and then put that in a homemade uh, tortillas. Yeah. With uh, I usually do my own pickled onions, uh-huh. red onions, throw that on top there with a little oh my uh, God. mango salsa. Yeah. Dude, it's the best thing. That I mean, sounds so good. It's good. I'm going to have to try that. Oh, dude, I got like packages that are already frozen. And <laughs> Stockpiling. Stockpiling it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, for all my duck hunting friends and everything, their biggest request for me is always my egg rolls. Yeah. Um, that sounds good, man. And then uh, my wife, she just, I mean, anything I cook, I'm like, what do you feel like tonight? I mean, usually it's quick. I mean, especially yeah. with the family or anything. But, yeah, well, um, something that you brought up, too, that I like is, like, when you're cooking this, you're cooking something that's easy, that, like, it, you may be cooking for hunters or, mm-hmm. or not hunters, and they're going to like it yeah right so i'm gonna 
the question I'll have for you about those elk sliders. When you make elk sliders, do you put egg inside? Yep. You don't put it. So what do you, do you do anything to? For a binder? Yeah, to keep the meat together. Yeah, a little bit of olive oil. Olive oil. Usually what I do on my elk meat, mm-hmm. a lot of guys, when they go to have it grind, mm-hmm. they can tell you the, they, what the percentage they Percentage want. of Sometimes fat. Sometimes they don't think about that. Yeah. So the higher the percentage of the fat that you add to it, the binder is going to go. So usually with elk meat, it's super lean. Because I only do 10% fat in my elk I meat. I do 10%. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you can get some places to do 15 because it's kind of like you don't want too much fat. Because yeah. they, they'll use, uh, usually what the locker plant will do is use tri-tip trimmings. Yeah. For the substitute to add to it or pork fat. Yeah. The other. Pork fat actually is a better binder than beef fat. Yeah. Um, well, and like if you do stuff with beef fat, you can't go and make a salami with it because no. the salami is going to come out super funky and gritty exactly. when you eat it. It'll be good and it'll taste like yeah. salami, but it'll be slimy and like but usually, grimy yeah. in your mouth. So I, I try to stay right in that area. I'll use olive oil as a, as a binder. Mm-hmm. But I'll take um, uh, shallots mm-hmm. and mince them up Yeah. With and then add my seasoning mix that all together Yeah. and do my sliders that way. But I won't use it. And then do you pan fry or barbecue? Uh, either way. Yeah. If I if the best thing I find is if I had if I was barbecuing it, I'd get a big cast iron skillet mm-hmm. and put it on there. So you're searing crust. them on the so, yeah. So I'm searing on there, so you get that crust. Because that's the whole thing is is if you get that crusty sear thing into it, it and, works and, well. And it, it does work very Hold, well. Yeah. Sometimes I maybe barbecue them, get a hot fire, go real quick with them because. I mean, they're, they're about the size of a meatball. Yeah, they ain't that big. big so they really, it's really... a meatball flattened out. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's their money. So now that we've made everybody hungry, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? You know, how'd you get into hunting? Let's get into the, let's get into the story, your background. Um, so I grew up in a little town in Central Valley, uh, Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, moved there in 88, uh, I originally was born in Hollister, so South San Benito okay. County. Uh, yeah. was where cowboy country for the, the Bay Area people. Yeah. Um, moved over to Los Banas and just grew up there. Um, really nothing to do in that community mm-hmm. as far as getting in the mountains because you're just, you're flat. Yeah, it's flatland. So, and my dad, he wasn't, and my mom, they weren't into hunting, but they kind of, one of my grandfathers hunted a little bit in, in, in Nevada. My dad, he was just a cowboy. Mm-hmm. He'd go pig hunting every now and then when he was living in Hollister, but never... So as a cowboy, what did he do? He was a card holder in the PRCA. Mm-hmm. So he bulldog and team roped. Oh, okay. Um, he he went back when he was in 18. He won the national high school finals. Oh, no way. In, in 69. So he... We have... A lot of history in the PRCA, the Turtle League, mm-hmm. my grandfather, a lot mm-hmm. of history back there. I was actually going to go pro my senior year until I broke my arm. Oh, and really? So that ruined, it didn't ruin, it just set me back and made me kind of reevaluate. Reevaluate what you were yeah, doing. Exactly what I was going to do with my life. And then um, that's when I really got more interested in, in hunting yeah. and Getting away from the belt buckle. Getting away from the belt buckle, but I mean, I still, it's still in my blood. I still, right. Enjoy it. <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, at that time, the cattle market was crappy. And yeah. so I was trying to make it money as a cowboy. It wasn't really going to go. It wasn't happening. Paying much for pay Not in California, probably. Exactly. Um, so 
from there, I just I wanted something to do, and, and I enjoyed being outdoors and everything about it. And then my mom started working for Fish and Game mm -hmm. as a seasonal aide there at Lost Man's Wildlife Area. Oh, how cool is that? And uh, so kind of got me interested. I wanted to get my hunting license. Yeah. And got my hunting license when I was 11. Mm -hmm. Went pheasant hunting on a couple junior hunts that Fishing Game was putting on with my dad. And I, we went out there and kicked around and killed some birds, but I I. I wanted to do more, and I wanted to try duck hunting. Yeah. Uh, my dad, being the cowboy that he was, he's like, I'm not going to walk out in the water or anything. Right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride in on that because, like, I've duck hunted, and uh, I've killed my fair share of hundreds of birds. Uh, you know, green heads, teal, geese, what have you. Um, never any of these, like, crazy specialty ducks. I got uh, buddies that chase all different kinds of species of ducks, and... Every time they get this one specific type of duck or a rare duck to get it mounted. Yeah. I don't understand that. But I'm right there with your dad in the sense of like, when I would duck hunt, I'd wake up at 9 a.m. And I'd go jump shoot a pond or a river <laughs> or a stream or something like that. I never would wake up at like, dude, I talk to my buddies now. I'll check. I'll wake up in the morning and it's duck season right uh -huh. now. So these dudes are going and piling into a duck blind at 3 in the morning or oh. like, you know what I mean? Or like getting in line at the refuge oh, and like, dude, I can't comprehend that because well, that's I, cold. I, I got a whole story. Yeah, we'll that. get into that. We'll get um, into that. So basically what ended up happening, getting back to the whole how I got into duck hunting was I just wanted to go and do something. So mm -hmm. these guys were using my junior ability to get into some of the junior blinds <laughs> on the refuges because they didn't have a kid and I had, Yeah. I was a junior hunter, so. You were like perfect opportunity. Perfect. And so. I, I just started kind of jumping around with all these friends mm -hmm. um, through the Lost Mass to go on the wildlife area and go into these junior hunt areas. And were you learning to blow calls at this time, too? I was, I was learning more or less on duck hunting. Yeah. And, and, I mean, that was kind of the... Some guys were... I had calls. I was trying to learn to call and learn everything about it. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of neat through my mom's connections there with the wildlife area, I got to know the the area managers and mm -hmm. the biologists on the area. So yeah. I would go with them and started learning the whole aspect of what waterfowling was all about. Yeah. It wasn't just going out and just shooting ducks as they fly by, but actually the whole biology and, and working birds and trying to figure out where they're at, kind of the science behind it. Yeah. And so, I couldn't say I had like one mentor. I had a multiple mentors yeah. that came to duck hunting and a lot of experienced guys that would go to the bay, go shoot divers in the bay or go over the, uh, the O'Neill four bay to go sh skull boat out there yeah. or, or go to the refuges and go shoot water grass or tule ponds or trees or the river. So the diversity that we, I had the opportunity to do was, it was tremendous at that yeah. point. You were getting experience across I was the board. Experience and getting the bug. Yeah. And from that point on, I just it just escalated and escalated to where um, we were spending the night in sweat lines or mm -hmm. working the reservations. It would be, and it was very competitive at that point. I mean, the refuge hunting back when I was growing up to now is completely different. Really? How so? Ethics. Yeah. I think the, all of that, and we could dive dive into that if you want to, but yeah, um, the the competition between hunters, but also the relationships that we had and and the uh, ethics growing up 
was a lot different now. I mean, we actually would communicate with other guys, knowing where their positions were at, and yeah. the sweat line or reservations, like kind of get a game plan with everybody, so we weren't stepping on each other. Yeah, getting into pawns. Well, you guys were being friendly with each other and friendly working with together. Friendly with each other, exactly. So yeah. that way, it wasn't it wasn't making it too difficult for somebody else to get birds, and if they got birds, then they would beforehand these were cell phones we would kind of figure out what they were doing then we they'd go find us and we'd go slide in that spot and yeah. capitalize off it was if that spot was on fire but i mean we would we were riding mountain bikes we'd ride a couple miles a day mm -hmm. just to get to some spots full gear no and, way oh yeah i mean it was it was it was a madhouse but it was fun but yeah like i said we were, we were respectful we were sportsmen to each other mm -hmm. like hey what pond are you going to and then we would work together and coordinate so that way we work finding the hot spots and like you were spots, saying exactly handing spots off to each yeah, other when you land not just out. being like getting in fist fights I've, I've heard horror stories i've seen it guys getting in fist fights with each other today like, today and back then oh, too. okay okay it wasn't as bad back then as it is now yeah because i hear a lot of crazy stories about people getting in altercations at duck refuges or mm -hmm. and it's because they're piling in and and they're not like I'm a hunter refuge in over 12 years. Yeah. A public refuge in 12 years because of some That's convenient. <laughs> it's, been, it's been very, I've been, I like it when my buddy says. I've, there's, I've there's, never hunted a public refuge, yeah. so I'm right there with you. I mean, any time that I have hunted from a duck blind or, or anything like that, never been on a public land yeah, spot. Yeah, Always yeah. been in a prime optimal place where somebody has a membership that's mm -hmm. ridiculous and they're own blind and the whole works. So I understand that. And I'm dreading to go back onto it now. Because that's why I won't. <laughs> I enjoyed waterfowl hunting so much. It's it's not just about going out and seeing how many birds I could kill. Yeah, I'm not a numbers guy like I was when you were a youth. When I was youth, because that's what our heads wrap around. It's like, oh, I gotta kill seven birds. I gotta kill seven birds. Yeah, or whatever the limit was that for that year. Yeah, I I grew up. I matured. Yeah, it's more about the whole experience. Right. Well, you know, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback off of that and relate that to deer hunting for me. In the sense, and I was talking to somebody about this the other day, when I grew up, mind you, I never killed a buck when I was in my youth hunting mm -hmm. for deer or anything like that. California public land's a nightmare. Oh, yeah. I worked my ass off and I'd never kill anything. But when I was younger, my drive was about killing that crazy, non-typical monster buck that's like a fallacy in California. Yeah. It happens, but, you know, more so on a governor's tag or something yeah, like that. Yeah. So that's just funny because I can relate to that of like stacking up numbers, getting, you know, the pinnacles yeah. when we're young because we're kind of ignorant to everything else yeah. per se. Yeah, right? that's that's where I came down to where it's like, I actually at one point in my mid-20s uh, or late early 20s, I was so upset with what fishing game put out as far as regulations go. Yeah. And I could see firsthand that this is this isn't making sense why we're allowed to shoot seven birds when mm -hmm. we're clearly there's not enough birds yeah and so i i put a self-imposed limit mm -hmm. for myself and a good friend of mine uh that i introduced the duck hunting we both put self-imposed limits like hey yeah we're not going to put a make a dramatic improvement just from what we're doing yeah. but it made me feel like i was doing my part as a conservationist yeah. leading by example exactly yeah. and so i mean i put a four bird limit mm -hmm. and i actually tell you the truth i actually had more fun shooting four mallards mm -hmm. on a public refuge than i was trying to shoot seven mallards on a public refuge yeah because 
it made me more in tune to what was going on around me and how to work the birds and really convince mm-hmm. like myself that hey you could do this yeah and I, it was a challenge yeah uh, and I'm seeing guys they're have they're they're coming out with seven birds I mean great limits but I was more happy shooting four mallards versus seven yeah and so now when you were getting into it you know, like if you're going to go pick a spot at a refuge or I don't know mm-hmm. how refuges break down. I know some spots are lotteries, whatever. Yeah. Um, how were you timing the birds? We talked about this a little bit earlier. It was like you're getting them in transition from one spot to another or, you know, food plots or, or whatever mm-hmm. it may have been. I'm, you know, I mean, again, I, I'm not a big duck hunter, so I'm learning as you're telling yeah. me. You know, so what was that? You know, how'd you learn that? It was just being in the field, and so... Days in the field. Days in the field. For a while there, I mean, we were we were getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning. We're in the pond at 3.30 in the morning, and we were waiting. Well, no, that's incorrect. Because they would release permits two hours before shoot time. Yeah. So we were up at early, and yeah. we were getting in the field... At 5. At 5. And so we're sitting in the fields, and, and sometimes... The shoot never started until two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. So you're sitting there all day in the field, yeah. nothing to do. So you start looking around and you start walking around and exploring and figuring out, oh man, I just jumped a bunch of birds out of this pond over here. Mm-hmm. Why are they in this pond? Well, is it a deep water? Is it Tule Pond? And so everything started having a routine. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why early season you shoot certain ponds versus late season you start shooting certain ponds and time of day yeah. versus um, when to shoot them in the afternoon, what fields to shoot in the afternoon versus yeah. in the morning. So it all started kind of like compiling into me and and, all, and my hunt buddy. Yeah. Why are the birds over here during this time of season or this time of day? Yeah. And so we started coordinating our efforts depending on what time we were going to go out in the morning or the afternoon. Yeah. We were going out in the afternoon. We'd go hunt the watergrass fields. Yeah. And where no one knew them. And we would watch where the birds were kind of leading to which area of the refuges that had watergrass because there was early watergrass and there was late watergrass on the way the seeds would shatter or mature, and the birds would find that. Yeah. Birds would tell you where they're going to want to go. Yeah. It was just understanding how to watch the birds and which direction they were going. And yeah. Trying to figure out what was over that direction. So it was a lot of research and just trial and error. Yeah. But once you do that, after a few seasons, it's all second nature. You really pick it up. Yeah. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into a tangent here a little bit because one of my buddies always talks about the language of the hunt. And as hunters, we learn this language of the wildlife, of the animals. And it's based off of time in the field, right? Mm-hmm. So... You get someone who's hunting birds and say, I mean, how many days were you going out a season? Uh, the most I hunted in one season, I missed three shoot days. So three shoot days, right? So I'm, three shoot days, so that's that's refuge shoot days. So that's yeah. Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. And that's a 100-day season, so that's like 56 shoot days. So I was in the field. Learning. Learning. fifty days yeah call it 50 days yeah. out of so the, the out of the season the right so and then what that resonates to is like you have guys that go out every weekend that maybe they know not every weekend but they'll go out you know one or two days or five days or whatever in a whole season and they don't do bad but they don't do excellent you know they could rip calls and and have fun with all that kind of stuff 
but like at the end of the day, they're not having the field experience to learn the pattern of the animal and, and what's going on. Correct. You know, and it's same thing with like people that hunt elk when they go out, like, like for me, I'm, I'm lucky enough that like every year I can go elk hunt for 10 days. Right. But then you have other guys that they can go elk hunt from September until, you know, December. Yep. You know what I mean? It's really available to them. Cause it's right there. I mean, in California, I can't do that. Yeah. So I get, you know, in four years, I get 40 days of experience in the field hunting elk, which to me is pretty good, you know, but then you only get some guys that maybe get five days every other year. Yeah. Or, you know what I mean? And, and it all resonates into learning the language, you know, of the hunt and the field that we're in and, and you know, where we're at and it's hours and, and time spent in the field. And you're just talking about you had learned it so well because of... My time, yeah. Yeah, I, I spending mean, I, the time, putting yeah, in the effort I mean, and the you energy. you spend the time doing anything, you're going to improve your chances of being successful. Yeah. I mean, it's still hunting. You still... How many failed attempts. Exactly. Yeah. So if you learn from failure and you and you adapt, and, and that's yeah. the biggest thing is I think a lot of these hunters don't adapt yeah. quickly. Yeah. And if you look at our conditions as they grow, habitat changes, animal behaviors change. Yeah. Um, due to pressure from predators, encroachment from urban development, mm -hmm. um, no telling how many other factors. I mean, climate. I mean, climate change. You could say that is, is part of it. To part yeah. of it, but to be a hunter, you also have to be adaptive. Yeah. If you don't adapt, you're gonna fail. Yeah. And I think a lot of guys don't understand that and so that's where the ethics maybe come into play because they they're they want to capitalize off of what somebody else is doing so they're going to encroach on them out in the refuge and and shoot birds on a swing or, or just make it more frustrating and non-successful for all parties everybody that's involved exactly and so not just them and their their group oh, you yeah. know their guys but the guys around them as well i mean i started off where i used to take as many decoys as i possibly could mm-hmm but I mean, I'm trying to get back into some areas and we're riding mountain bikes and we're going two miles back on a dirt road, a gravel road that's muddy as hell. That's so crazy to me that you can go that far into oh, yeah. to a refuge. I mean, there's, I mean, there's trips that we've That's like backpack there. hunting from oh, here, yeah. except you're backpack hunting for death. Yeah. <laughs> and we would get back there and it was a lot of effort to go through there. And I started realizing that I don't need to take so many decoys if I learn how to call or... If I know which area to set up into at the right time of day, yeah, I can minimize my equipment and be more successful and be more mobile and not be killing myself at the end of the day taking all this stuff out there. And heck, towards the end of the season, there was times where I was only taking one decoy out and killing my birds where everyone else wasn't. Yeah, um, because I was adapting, I was learning the behavior of the birds. I was understanding these birds were being overly pressured. Yeah. From everybody for a hundred days. Yeah. Well, not only that, you're a stellar duck caller. <laughs> I wouldn't call me stellar, but yeah. You're pretty good. I, 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm, it took me a while to get to that, but yeah, yeah I, I hold my own. So, right, you're, you're coming into duck hunting, right? Yeah. We'll go back full circle to where we're at. Yeah. Youth learning hunting, getting into, you know, refuge hunting and jumping around a different spot to different spot and and different type of bird hunting mm -hmm. waterfowl hunting all over the bay area right oh, no, the, no, the whole central valley central valley yeah. excuse me um and the different opportunities it provides yep right 
So you be you turn eighteen, mm-hmm. and you go and pick up your guide's license. Yeah, and you kind of start getting more into it. Yep. So let's talk about that. So my senior year, I broke my arm. Rodeo. And, and I was screwing around. I wish I was oh, rodeo, okay. but I was screwing around doing, <laughs> doing, a, doing a seventeen year old stunt. But um, so it, I did it right before duck season. So my all my duck season was shot because they were going to keep me in cash for a while. Uh huh. But I wanted to get out of the field, and so what I started doing is I started going with older gentlemen that were handicapped because they had access to the handicap lines provided by the state of California on the refuges. Yeah. So they didn't have any means to, to run a dog or call or set up decoys. So me being passionate about being out in the marsh, yeah. Um, I gave them my services. wasn't being paid. wasn't anything. Yeah, going out and helping just, others, yeah. man. And just getting out of the house. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't be. I got stir crazy, and so from that point, I started realizing I do enjoy helping others accomplish something. Yeah. With my and that's abilities. where you and I, I feel, we're a lot. We're similar in a lot of ways with that. Like I love to get out with other people on their hunts and help them yeah. achieve success. In the hunt. And by success, I mean, every hunt can be successful. But I mean, success of the harvest. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or sharing the time, whether or not they kill anything or not. Yeah. You're you're, you're providing them an opportunity and sharing your knowledge and experience to provide them, hopefully, with the same experience as you feel. Yeah, well, that and then a lifetime where they can apply what you're helping them with. Exactly. You know what I mean? And so from there, um, I got tied in with one of my neighbors who was an outfitter. And he had a couple contracts on a couple ranches just west of Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were trying to control the pig population. The pigs were coming in, destroying um, the branch, the barley, the oat fields. And they were getting ready to turn calves out there and everything. So he said, hey, I need some help. And my dad, he hired my dad, who was a ranch butcher part-time, and myself to help him with these, facilitate these hog hunts, taking care of the animals. Processing. Yeah. So... That got me interested in it because he started using me a lot more on the smaller hunts mm-hmm. um, because of my ability to process game in a quickly fashion because of my background butchering with my dad growing up. Yeah. And I got enjoying it because I'm hunting. Yeah. I'm chasing animals. I'm, I'm trying to get in the wheelhouse. I'm trying to get customers close or clients close to the animals. So yeah. it just created a bug for me. So I went and got my guy's license. Um, got hired on with a ranch down in Kalinga, mm-hmm. uh, doing bird hunts and running their, uh, their gun dog program, their setters and everything. So now when you're running the dog program, what does that consist of? Basically I was, uh, training the dogs or keeping up on their training, mm-hmm. uh, their health conditions, um, maintaining the kennels and everything and, and making sure every, all the dogs were well tuned before bird season started. Mm-hmm. And then, um. From that point on, that was kind of my responsibility on that ranch, um, on top of helping with the customers, the clients, guiding the clients on the pheasants and the, the chucker and the quail. But we also ended up getting about 40,000 acres leased for hog ground between mm-hmm. Kings, uh, Kings County all the way into Carmel Valley and South San Benito County. We yeah. had three ranches tied up. So with, our, with my pig hunting background, uh, guiding, yeah, that just rolled right into it, yeah, and so that, <clears throat> excuse me, that's how we got everything started, yeah, and 
from that point on, I've had my guy's license since I was 18, so almost 20 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, it's funny because you're, you're talking about the dogs and the kennels, and mm -hmm. then you're also talking about helping out with the bird hunts and all that kind of stuff. So, really, when you started doing this, it went from a 100-day season to a year-round gig, training dogs, you know, making sure everything was good, yep. making sure that when the season came back around, right, everything on on the ranch Man. was, you know, running accordingly. Correct. Right? Yeah. So what was that like? It was... Because that's experience. more of the management aspect of it. You yeah, know? I wasn't really managing the habitat at that time yeah. or anything. I mean, I was going to school uh, at the same time there in Kalinga. I was working on my biology and animal science degree. Mm -hmm. uh, so... What I was learning there also went hand-in-hand -hand with some of the, the guzzler improvements, uh, habitat development, yeah. starting to learn that aspect of it. Um, and then just the exposure. I mean, I had a lot of opportunities to, to hunt with some unique individuals and and develop relationships with them. And, and like I, one of the relationships I developed with was a local guy out of Hanford, and we're still good friends to this day. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, I talked to him there not too long ago. So the opportunities that provided in Kalinga with my guiding ability and, and my dog knowledge just progressed from that point on, knowing yeah. I wanted to get into the hunting industry as a career. Further. And so things changed in Kalinga. I decided to go uh, after three years of being down there. It was time for a change. Mm -hmm. um, was going back to my whole waterfowl roots uh, on growing up in, in Los Banas um, was to get into dog training mm -hmm. and because that's what I was doing part-time through high school was I was training labs for waterfowl um, was working with some trainers throwing birds just learning the trade because mm -hmm. I, I wanted to be in the marsh yeah and that was a way for me to stay in the marsh was I'd go work on the weekends yeah in high school throwing birds with these trainers well they took me under their wing taught me the the, the ropes of training dogs yeah <clears throat> moved up to Oakdale, lived up there for a while, training uh, with a gal, got more in tune to the, the new aspect of training labs, competing with them, uh, and out, ended up going out on my own mm -hmm. and started my own business instead of being a subcontractor for her and qualified uh, my personal dog. I tried to qualify a couple other dogs, but I qualified for a qualified roller uh, for the 06 Master Nationals in Morgan Hill. Mm -hmm. He was one of six of the youngest dogs, and I was the youngest pro to qualify for the Nationals. That really? And did it in, basically, there was, when you're in hunt tests, you have junior, senior, master. Yeah. <clears throat> master level dogs, once they get six qualifications, I think at that time it was six qualifications and a title, it qualified for the Master Nationals. We did it in seven tests. Wow. He was that quick. Yeah. Um, first test he ran, I pulled him on his last bird because he wasn't handling the way I wanted to. And the judge says, all you had to do is just pick up that bird and you would qualify. I said, yeah, but I want to hold true to my training. Yeah. I don't want, I want, he's got a long career ahead of him. I don't want just to jeopardize it for one mistake right now. Yeah. And then he goes, that was probably the smartest decision you ever made. Yeah. And then, I mean, I just was going back to what I was taught and... Uh, so from that point on, 
it developed into where I was managing uh, club part time down in Newman uh-huh. uh, while training dogs professionally full time. Yeah. And that was kind of always been my passion was kind of waterfowl habitat, wanting to get into ranch management, something to do with the land, yeah. correlate agricultural with hunting and, and make a create a balance. Yeah. And one of my clients uh, at the time I was almost turned down his dog. This was this was so crazy. He had an older male that he wanted force fetched and I was like, oh man, he's just he's too old. I'm not sure if it's gonna fly. Kind of like I'm younger because you don't have to deal with bad habits. <laughs> and he was adamant about me training his dog. I'm like, okay, I'll take your dog. I'll force fetch him for you. And I'll come up and deliver to him yeah. uh, on opening day of duck season. Well, I didn't realize that he was a member of a club in the Butte Sink. Mm-hmm. And the Butte Sink, for anybody that waterfowl hunts, that's like the mecca of bird hunting, of bird hunting for California, besides Klamath Falls and Tule Lake, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you can't get any better in the state of California than hunting in the Butte Sink. And I was like, holy crap, man, I get to go hunt a, a million dollar duck club in the Butte Sink <laughs> opening day. I'm like, how better, how, life can't get any better than this. Yeah. Right? You've reached the, the holy. I reached up the holy, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm, <laughs> just bury me now, I'm happy. Yeah. Go up there, uh, meet up with them, drop the dog off, had dinner with the club members and everything start talking with the president of the club actually we we uh, we kind of tied one on that night uh-huh. just start talking stories about hunting and his experience and my experience and he was an older guy he was probably in his uh late 60s been everywhere mm-hmm. hunted everything killed everything i mean the guy has been an accomplished hunter developed that club and they were looking for a new manager mm-hmm. at the time and he found out my background and they offered me, uh, wanted me to apply for the position. Oh, really? And so I was kind of on the fence. And I'm like, right. I mean, I talked to my client the next day in the duck blind. I'm like, so are, is he serious? Do you guys really want me to, to, to apply for this position? Yeah. He's like, do it. I'm like, okay. So I applied for it. Knowing I already had a, a well, a good business going with the dog training. I was doing very well and they had, had a full truck and. And I was like, man, it's going to be hard to walk away from this. But yeah. decided to do it and managed that duck club in the Butte Sink for 10 years. And it was one of the largest duck clubs up there uh, right now. No way. Yeah. How cool was that for you? So you get to go there and you're like, cool, I can die happy. Yeah. And then here you are. They're offering me a position. Going into management now. Yeah. And so I took the job. Uh basically sold my my dog training business Mm -hmm. and walked away from it so really quick with the dog training for people that might be trying to train their dogs Mm -hmm. or anything like that what kind of advice would you suggest to somebody who's trying to get into that or just working with their own dog personally one-on-one the the biggest thing nowadays if you if you it's all goes into the breed Mm -hmm. i mean I, people laugh at me. They ask me, well, what do you look for in a dog as far as a puppy or picking? I go, well, I, I do the research on the pedigree. Yeah. They go, well, what's that going to well, I mean, what does that tell? I said, well, if you don't know anything about a pedigree, mm-hmm. get with a trainer that does. Yeah. And have them kind of break it down for you. 
And then they ask me, well, what do you want? I mean, what's the average price range? That's, I would pay for a puppy. Yeah. I go, well, you pay for what you get. Yeah. I mean, usually, I personally wouldn't go buy a puppy for myself a thousand dollars under a thousand dollars because it just you're not paying for what you're getting and and usually when you're in that thousand dollar range you have parents that are both titled in either hunt test or field trial so they have the fc or afc qualified all age master hunter or senior hunter yeah and they're carrying that through their generations yeah so if they have a five generation pedigree and you're seeing those titles on each one of those ancestors you know you have the ability to have, you have a dog that's going to have the ability to do what you want it to do yeah there is dogs out there that you could buy for 100 bucks that are awesome hunting dogs yeah um but the biggest thing is you could take a hundred dollar dog or a thousand dollar dog and ruin it by not working with them yeah and not keeping up on the routine the repetition and being successful in your training and mm-hmm. on your approach Teach that dog. These dogs nowadays, if that's what I'm saying on the breeding, if you go to that higher range, these dogs are smart. Yeah. They're not the, the bullheaded dogs that they were 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. These dogs, I mean, the genetics have gotten so more superior and our breeding selection has gotten so much better. You can actually buy a dog and then just teach it really simple on what to do. Yeah. As long as you stay up on your training. Um, if someone's looking for to do it themselves and they need some guidance, Mike Lardy. Uh-huh. Mike Lardy is probably the guru when it comes to lab training. Oh, really? Um, and someone might say, well, he's just a field trial trainer. Yeah, but field trial field trial training is the highest standard when it comes to running our dogs. Uh-huh. So if you train to that standard, you're going to have a gun dog that's going to be capable of doing anything you want. To you do. get your best results. Exactly. Yeah. So why, why kind of minimize your training? Go to the maximum. Push them to the max. Yeah. And allow them to develop and teach them how to be successful. Yeah. And then you're going to have a dog that's going to be extremely successful in the duck blind for you. Yeah. Uh, all my, the, the, the club members that I trained dogs for, because I was doing that for them or giving them guidance on it. Yeah. And they didn't want to deal with a puppy. Go buy a washout field trial dog. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with them as far as a hunting dog goes. Yeah. And they have all the tools necessary to be successful. And, and what's that price range for a dog? You could be anywhere from thirty five hundred up to nine ten grand mm-hmm. for a field trial washout, depending on what level they're at in yeah. their training or success or in their career. Yeah. And then when I say a washout, they might have something that's not going to get them an FC or an AFC title. Maybe they aren't they're falling short on a five hundred yard retrieve. Well, yeah. most of the time in a duck blind, you're not going to get a 500 yard retreat. That's the extreme, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so what if he puts on a little bit of longer hunt? At least he's hunting at 500 yards and still comes up with a bird. But yeah. on paper, it's not going to be successful for that dog. So, yeah. some of these owners, some of these trainers, like, well, I need to have it a little bit sooner or I need to win. So, they end up putting the dog on the market. The dog's usually two to three years old, sometimes four. Mm-hmm. You've got a hell of a dog that's going to last you at least six, seven years. Yeah. In the blind. In the blind. Yeah. And there's going to be a great family dog. You already know what the dog's personality is going to be like. Yeah. Because they're already matured. They're already trained. I mean, that's almost the best value out there right now on the market is to buy a washout. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So you sell your business. Sell my business. You get into management Mm -hmm. of this property. How's that going? I actually uh, left it 
uh, two years ago. So yeah. I stayed there for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, life got in the way. Yeah. Life uh, will do that, right? <laughs> yeah. So I was fortunate enough <clears throat> to where we had my our first child, my son, who will be three in February. <clears throat> and it was getting kind of hard for my wife to commute. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. <clears throat> Um, she was commuting already an hour and a half from where we lived. Yeah. We lived there on a the property. Okay. And so we kind of decided, I'm like, you know what? It's not fair. You sacrificed a lot for me over the, the years that we were together. Yeah. Um, she stuck it out while you were managing that property, that working yeah. year round. Yeah. Cause yeah. we were in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, we were on the North end of the Buttes mm -hmm. and <laughs> it was 15 minutes to town, 20 minutes to town to the Live Oak, which is just a small little town. Yeah. Another 30, another 10 to 15 minutes to Yuba City was the closest town we could go. Yeah. Shop. Actual so, town. Actual town. And I kind of looked at her and, and tried to work something out and it just didn't plan out. And so basically we, we left the club two years ago and, mm -hmm. and, um, Still really good friends with everybody there. Still hunt there. Yeah. Um, and just, it was a step in my life that I loved, I enjoyed. Um, would I do it again? Hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, I took all the knowledge I developed as a youth, duck hunting, and with my biology and animal science background, and was able to apply it to something mm -hmm. and to develop, help develop a piece of property. It was already in the, the development phases, yeah. but I went in and was able to help develop it to the next level. Yeah. And, uh, started their water grass program, started managing the habitat for, for food production and loafing production, just not just, oh, just mow it and put water on it and the birds And hope that it works. Exactly. And so- You got scientific with it. I got scientific with it. And that's <laughs> what you have to, and that's part of adapting. Yeah. I mean, if you're trying to compete with everybody in the area, you gotta be ahead of the game. Right, and in that area at that time, water grass. When I when I walked started working up there, water grass wasn't a even really on the radar with yeah. most of those club owners. Yeah, and coming from the Central Valley, where water grass was the only food source because they didn't have rice. Yeah, they didn't have flooded cornfields. Yeah, so they had no other way to feed these birds except for timothy and water grass. So the refuges were developing water grass as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So I learned firsthand from some of the area managers on how to develop water grass and how to control it and manipulate it for the benefit of the birds mm -hmm. and to capitalize off of what it was. Yeah, benefit for the hunter exactly. as well. Exactly. So everyone, and if anybody's hunting the Butte Sink, they know that the biggest concentration of birds leave the Butte Sink at night to go feed in the rice, mm -hmm. the flooded rice fields. Unfortunately, with a few with the past droughts that we had and, and uh, the lack of water, some of these rice fields weren't being flooded. Yeah. So if you want to hold your birds and maintain your, your kind of what I would call your, uh, your stock, you had to develop a habitat to support that. Mm -hmm. So I had kind of developed it to the point where we had a balance where I was feeding our own birds, retaining our own birds, and they would loaf on the same place. So in over a course of, three or four years of me starting there and managing it, I changed, we changed the flight pretty much on the club. Mm -hmm. It used to be north to south, birds leaving from the bean fields, going over into the rice and then coming back down into the bean field, which is uh, a wildlife refuge, national wildlife refuge, which is a big sanctuary down in the south in the sink, um, to the fact that our flight went now east to west. So the birds were staying on the club mm -hmm. 
and wasn't leaving. Oh, wow. So I was maintaining our averages, our daily averages, and daily concentration of birds by doing this. Yeah. Because they would go from the feed, the water grass, and then go loaf in the old marsh, the yeah. old developed marsh. Yeah. And just bouncing back and forth. And so when other clubs would, would worry about what's going on in the bead field, we didn't have to worry about that. That wasn't our bank. Our yeah. bank was on the property itself. Never left. Never left. Yeah. I mean, they you to get the migration. Well, of but, course. Yeah, but I was maintaining our population. Yeah. How cool is that? It was cool. It was fun. A lot of hard work. Yeah. A lot of hours. I mean, during the summertime, we had such a narrow window. Yeah. To get everything ready from the blinds. Going. And, yeah. It was dark to dark seven days a week for three months. Just running through it. Oh, yeah. And then season would hit and away I go. Yeah. Your wife's like, where did you go? Yeah. <laughs> she only right. gets to see me for a couple months out of the year. <laughs> right. Pretty much full time, and that was it. Right. So you transition. I mean, obviously, you've been big game hunting longer than the last two years. Yeah. But you transitioned somewhere in there in the last six or eight years or whatever. Yeah. And then to big game hunting. So I always had the the bug to go big game hunting but you were always duck hunting i was always duck hunting and it sounds like hunting for somebody else yeah so and it also sounds like waterfowl was like that was your deal yeah you know what i mean it was it was what i knew best yeah and it was what was readily available to me and extremely proficient at yeah you know along with training dogs yeah i mean it, it created a lifestyle it got me into the industry um Got me a lot of opportunities. I got to, uh, like I said, I got to hunt with a lot of great people. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, celebrities, athletes. I mean, it, it really across the board. Across the board. Well, and, especially out there. Yeah, and that was. I mean, like I say, I've been very fortunate in pursuing a career in the hunting industry and made a lot of connections and mm-hmm. and enjoyed it. And yeah. I still enjoy it. And I will never change any aspect of it. Um, but leading up to it, I was always, I had this, I need something more. I mm-hmm. need to challenge myself. Yeah. Duck hunting was, I'm not trying to be conceited or anything, but it was it was too easy. Well, you'd gotten so proficient at it yeah. that like, you know, and we were talking about when we were looking at my deer heads on the mm-hmm. wall and I was like, well, this deer I shot with, you know, this rifle yeah. with, you know, this sight on it because it was getting too easy for me and I needed to up the bar. So you're talking about that exact same thing. Things are getting a little bit easier. You need to yeah. make it more difficult and, on yourself for that constant challenge, probably yeah. which dri- you know, drives us as hunters further into hunting. Well, yeah, it drives the cycle once more. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, we like to beat ourselves up and I think it's more of how frustrated can we get with ourselves before we become successful at something. Yeah, with a harvest. Um, but yeah, no, I, I've always had, I mean, I, I enjoyed when I was living in Kalinga, guiding down there, I enjoyed pig hunting. Yeah. And it really honed my skills as a hunter. Yeah. Because. Dude, one, pigs are not easy to no, hunt. No, I mean, man. everyone, I mean, they, <laughs> pigs are little tanks. I mean, an old timer told me, he says, the last things on earth is going to be a coyote, a cockroach, and a pig. Those yeah. are the only things that are going to survive. Dude, the pigs are rough, man. And I saw it firsthand living down, I mean, guiding down there, and we, we had opportunities of, of hunting pigs pretty much right in the center of it all. Yeah. Carmel Valley. Yeah. I mean, it's not that far from Paso where, where the pigs were introduced by the Hearst family. Yeah. And down in, in uh, South Kings County, we mm-hmm. had a big property down there, seeing the, the, the pigs' influence in there and how difficult they were. 
Um, I mean, the biggest conception with pigs is is ah, they're just they're just stinky or anything. I've actually had some pigs that are really great eating. Dude, I've had I've for me, I haven't killed a pig yet that's not good eating. Yeah. Every pig, I mean, mind you, I hunt them in the winter mm-hmm. after the acorns drop. Yeah. But like, I I have yet to have a pig where I'm like, this is disgusting. Yeah. Which all the rumors I've ever heard about pigs are. They're just oh, gross. I, I, I've had some pigs where we processed that would smell like fish meal. Uh huh. Because they was done. They were we harvested them in the late season in the summers where food was really tight and yeah. water and they were eating juniper berries and everything. Yeah. So I have had those experiences, but they're few and far between from all the pigs that we've we've had on the ground with, yeah. with clients and everything. But going back to the whole big game and getting the bug. I just, I needed something, like you said, a challenge, a new challenge. I mean, mallard hunting, speck hunting, it was, it was second nature to me on that duck club and through my career. And so. You dive into big game. I dive into big game. I've already killed uh, my my first black tail, or I call them mixed, whatever you want. I shot when I was in my mid-twenties. I killed an antelope back up in Bras, Montana, uh, right when I was 21. So let's back up to your blacktail. Where was it? Where were you hunting out? D zone? I, I was hunting in uh, D3 through 5, and he was actually a marsh buck. I yeah. shot him in a rice field. How cool is that? <laughs> I went in, the funny story is I saw him chasing the doe, and there was two fawns with him. Mm-hmm. And he beds down on the rice check. Yeah. In his tulip patch. And I'm like, all right. I mean, this is probably going to, ah, that's not duck. Is that? deer hunt i'm like well you, when you have the opportunity to go you take buck, it. you take it yeah i'm 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 one to not pass up opportunities right and we'll get into per- public versus private yeah. a little bit later on too and so i snuck into him the wind was blowing super hard and i'm like i got this this is no problem yeah i had my out six with me and i sneak down i go downwind from him and i watched the fawns bed down in the rice field mm-hmm. so i start i find their trail and i just walk right down their trail the rice field's dry at this time because we're getting ready for harvest and everything. Yeah. I stumble onto the fawns. Oh, like, really? I basically step on them. Yeah. And they bust out, and I'm like, oh, crap, I'm just going to get Busted. blown, right? Yeah. Well, they go away from where the buck and the doe Went. bedded down. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, that saved me. Like, here's, here's lucky shot number one, right? I don't yeah. get busted by the fawns. I go about another 20 yards, and this time I'm... Probably within 10 yards of where I last saw the buck the buck and the doe bed down. And I'm like, where is he? I mean, he's got to be right in here. Mm-hmm. I take two more steps. He jumps up. And just the doe goes right. He goes left. I throw my shot and my rifle up. Mm-hmm. And I see him bounding away. And I just put it on hair and shoot. He does a backflip in the air. No way. And I'm like, whoa, what happened there? I thought yeah. I missed him, right? Yeah. Ended up, I shot him at 15 yards. It felt like a pheasant hunt, more or less, than it was yeah. a, a deer hunt, right? <laughs> yeah. With the scope rifle. I get up to him. I shot him. I'm like, oh, man, I probably hit him in his back, perhaps. He's probably all Blew up his up hams there. or something. I shot him in the back of the neck, and that him doing the front foot yeah. was his just body the giving out. just giving out and just the, the impact of the, the, the round hitting him. Yeah. So that was my first buck. Yeah. Um... I was happy as hell. Yeah. Got it off my shoulders. Um, 
did some deer hunting in high school, but never really. I mean, we were hunting down at D six before it was a premium zone. Yeah, but never killing anything. Imagine that D six yeah. is a fucking premium. Yeah, I know. Zone. <laughs> we were hunting right above Dodge Ridge, the ski resort over there. Yeah. And so we never. I mean, we probably hunted there two years, and I never saw anything. And mm -hmm. then pursuing my career as a guide in yeah. school and everything. Got away got, from got away from deer hunting, but had the opportunity to do that. Had an opportunity to go to Montana on a guided uh, antelope hunt. Was that archery or rifle? That was rifle. Yeah. Uh, it was right in October. Yeah. Uh, we went with um, uh, Rick Casper with uh, Rawhide Creek Ranches at the time. Mm -hmm. And he had property in Wyoming and brought us in the Brittle area. Incredible area. That yeah. whole lower Powder River area. Beautiful tons and tons of mule deer mm -hmm. i was i was more impressed with a mule deer herd than i was and that's in montana that was in montana okay. that lower uh, southeast corner yeah so if you look on the map you'll see bras and brittle yeah and that and that whole what they call the lower powder river region yeah my grandfather used to do antelope hunting out yeah out that way beautiful Eastern area montana in the plains just incredible and, and this is a funny story too i mean we were show up it's 65 degrees short sleeve weather beautiful and we we're going to go out for an afternoon hunt and somehow in the whole transition my rifle scope gets knocked around uh-oh and gets off cantered and we were filming all the hunts for his tv show that he was trying to produce at the time i miss six bucks in the first day antelope bucks antelope yeah okay i was sick yeah. I'm like, I, I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, my scope, everything, everything was, everything was everything great was, when I left. Rippling, and I'm yeah. like, shit. And so we didn't have, so get back to the camp. And he's like, yeah, blizzard's coming in. And I'm looking at the sky. I'm like, it's still a bluebird. There's it's still there's looking no great like, out here. What are you talking about? Go and have dinner at nine o'clock, walk out to go to the cabins and it's snowing. Really? It went from 65 to negative two. Oh, wow. The next day. Well, all the antelope bunched up together uh -huh. and get up there and we're 65 to me. Oh, it was, it was oh miserable. My God. And I didn't pack That's Montana gear. though. No. And then, <laughs> and I didn't pack like super cold weather gear. Yeah. I'm, we're freezing our asses off. And that morning, everyone else got their, their antelope bucks except for me. Yeah. So we go out the next morning and... <laughs> Where we find these bucks and they're all bedded down with some does. So we are on top of this ridge line. I'm about 250 yards out. Wow, that's close. And we're sit laying there, and we lay there for about 20 minutes in the snow. Yeah. And finally, Rick looks over at Tom. And he says, "Rick, Tom, do something. Do something now. I can't feel my toes." Yeah. So Tom jumps up. He starts doing jumping jacks to get this buck to stand up so I can get a clear shot. As soon as that buck stands up, I let one rip. As soon as I let it rip, he does this and he goes right underneath his neck. No. Miss that fuck. And I'm like, oh shit, here's number seven. I'm missing now. I'm pissed off. I'm about yeah. ready to chuck Frustrated, my gun. Frustrated, heartbroken. Frustrated. I just, just aggravated. Questioning your ability exactly, as a shooter. Right? Yeah. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here? I stand up. I got cactus thorns all in my thighs. I didn't know I was laying in a cactus patch. I was so numb. Oh my God. I had to pull out. 15 out of my left thigh and 20 out of my other thigh. Were you, did you have to pull them out with pliers? Or yeah. You, oh, my God. <laughs> and, but I was so numb, I couldn't feel it. Holy I, shit. That was the coldest I've ever been. Long story short, another guy, I asked him if I could borrow his rifle. Uh-huh. Go out, last day of the hunt. At this point, you have zero confidence. Zero, I'm like, 
I'm just, I'm done. I'm done. I'm, I mean, whatever. <laughs> I mean, just put a fork in me, right? Yeah. We get on another grip the third, the third day. It's now it's only uh, 14 degrees. So yeah. we, we, it's kind of a uh, climate change, only warming trend, everything. It was, it was tropical. Yeah. We find this group and we sat there for 20 minutes waiting for these, uh, for these mule deer to cross out of the road in front of us. Oh, really? <laughs> they were only 30 yards. There was eight. Eight bucks and two does. Oh my god! And the smallest buck was twenty-five inches wide. Yeah, yeah, beautiful bucks. It was stupid. I'm sitting yeah. there just like gotta love Montana. I'm like I'm not even concentrating on the antelope. I'm just watching all these mule deer. Like yeah. I'm trying to figure out how I could go up here mule deer hunting right after this. Right. So I'm getting a new rifle. <laughs> Seriously. Sneak up onto him. We get a hundred yards from this buck. He's mm-hmm. feeding away from the group. I put around and drop him. Ends up scoring like it's. 76 mm-hmm. biggest buck of the camp yeah so it paid off for my misses you hung I in there man by, uh, so you hung in there you didn't give up in. dude and you, and you got it done and yeah. then the one that you did end up shooting is the biggest buck. but the first buck i missed uh-huh they rough scored him at almost 90 no way it was yeah i'm sitting there going i don't you know i mean at this time i'm young i don't know how to score antelope i yeah. don't i mean they're a speed goat they're fun they shoot they're like pigs in yeah. montana right if you want to shoot one at full speed you yeah. got to lead it by like 60 exactly. feet exactly yeah and so it was a great experience i learned a lot on myself but that was kind of like just a little nibble and big game hunting for me and then i was just concentrating waterfowl till like you said just recently about six years mm-hmm. ago i got into big game hunting yeah um one of the new challenge basically what happened was um we were at a um cwa dinner yeah and um my wife fiance at the time we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do for our honeymoon mm-hmm. and they were auctioning off a trip to uh africa Let's go hunting in africa yeah in south africa and i was like I wasn't sure on it, but she and I. But I'm like, I don't want to go to Hawaii. I don't want to sit on the beach for four days. I mean, I'm not a beach guy. I doesn't be, interest you. Doesn't at all. interest me at all. It interested her, but it's like, let's do something we can both agree on. Mm-hmm. And she was all about it, and I'm like, okay. So I'll I'll try my hand at it. Yeah. And ended up buying the hunt. Got a deal on it. Um, flew to Johannesburg. Drove three and a half hours to Limpopo, Providence. Mm-hmm to shoot with that outfitter up there. Um, she killed her first big game animal on that trip, which was kind of a, a proud moment for me because I was able to share that with her. She's never shot anything big. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of introduced her to hunting, and uh, she bought, shot a bliss buck. I made a great shot on it. Um, and from that point on, I think we killed probably... And Paula, two warthogs. Warthogs are rad, dude. I got some good stories on those warthogs. Mm-hmm. Um, a red harder beast, a black wilder beast, and then yeah, that was basically it. Mm-hmm. Seven days down there. Um, it was unique. Yeah. It was a very unique experience. A very unique honeymoon. Very unique honeymoon. That was when you were sold. Yeah. She's the right one. Yeah. Well, I, should, I better been sold because I yeah. already put the ring on. Yeah. But that like was like. <laughs> yeah. That's what I like. All right. So she was all game for that. And um, it was, it was different. Um, I don't know if I'd ever do it again. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, it was too easy. Yeah. I can see that. Um, I have felt- a couple of buddies that go to Africa every year and they're spending 
ridiculous amounts oh, yeah. of money when they go. But I mean, sure, they're they're hunting in X amount of acres, which is beyond anything that yeah. I'll ever hunt in my life in a yeah. in a penned quote unquote penned area. It's all high fence in that area. It's all it's all high fence. And but they're out having they're having a great oh, time. Yeah. You know what I mean? But like like what you're saying is everything is it's quasi penned out there. Yeah, For the most yeah. part you're not And I, I I get that. I get it and I agree what they're doing because they've actually by doing that they put a value on the animals. Mm-hmm. And the ranch that I hunted on actually has a breeding program for the black and Paula, mm-hmm. which was almost extinct. Yeah. And now they're able to raise them and sell them for hunting and everything. So it has its benefits. Which helps keep poaching down oh, for that species because now people can actually it's, get out there and hunt them. It's like the Wild West down there. Yeah. I mean, they were telling me that they shoot at helicopters that don't run numbers yeah. on their telling. And I'm like, what? They're yeah. like, yeah, they start calling around ranches. Hey, you got somebody coming in on a helicopter? Nope. Nope. Shoot it. Start shooting at them. Yeah. And then what ranches are allowed to have rhinos on them? Mm-hmm. They got 24-hour security detail on the rhinos. Oh, yeah. Walking and around. They, but there's still places that are that do have rhinos or, you know, elephants or whatever, where the animals still on the high fence properties are getting poached. Yeah. Off of them. Yeah. It's, like that's beyond me. That's so crazy. It's it's nuts. But it was, like I said, it was a neat experience. Mm-hmm. I never never traveled internationally. Yeah. And to travel internationally, and go hunting was like okay, this is pretty cool. Yeah. Pain in the ass. Yeah. Pain in the ass though. Holy crap! Because uh, going there was no big deal. Mm-hmm. The flight kind of sucked because I was nonstop from Atlanta to Johannesburg on. Yeah. And that was. 18 hours or whatever but coming home <laughs> coming home I almost got arrested in Johannesburg oh wow so we're we're packed up we're they drop us off at the airport because international flights that terminal opens up um, like late in the afternoon mm-hmm so me and my wife we go and we check in my guns with the uh, police department issue it to them give them our permits and everything and tell them that all of the ammunitions in our, our, our luggage that's going to be checked in. Well, we're going through security detail, and I run my backpack through there. And all of a sudden, the metal detector goes off in the x-ray machine on my backpack. Uh-oh. And I'm like, what the hell? So we're, they open it up. They're looking for something, nothing. Run it back through there. Yeah, because it looks like a, a rifle shell. I'm like, what do you mean there's a rifle shell in there? Mm-hmm. Like I know I was missing one, but I thought I ejected it out on the ground. And yeah, I just forgot to patrol it up. Sure enough, we find an empty thirty out six case. Case yeah. in the bottom of my my hunting bag. Oh no! That was tucked underneath the seam. Yeah, and I was like, ah oh, shit! And it's an empty case. It's an empty case. But they throw a fit. Yeah, because their their gun laws are so like strict. Like if you had any firearm components without having your firearms license mm-hmm. with you, it's grounds for arrest. Wow. So super strict. Super strict. Yeah. And if you had a shell or something that wasn't declared on your firearms license, like say you had a two two three round on you, and on on your permit there was no two two three round guns that are capable of handling that round. You're smuggling. You're you're smuggling and you're arrested. Yeah. And so they Take the shell and go to the head security guy. The head security guy comes out and says, when you're done packing your bag up, please come inside. Okay. So I go inside, and I hand him my passport, 
he asked me, he starts making fun of my name. Mm-hmm. Like, what's like, what's your surname? I'm like, what are you talking about? What's my surname? My last name is Hex. He goes, well, what's this for this name? This is your first name? I go, yeah. yeah. He goes, how do you say that? And so I'm trying to tell him how to pronounce it. Latigo or Latigo. Yeah, 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 they were butchering it. I mean, it was, yeah, I'm sitting there going, what the hell? And in the meantime, my wife's already gone through customs. Yeah. So she can't come back. She doesn't know what's going on. She just knows I disappeared behind the, the glass box. You're gone. So the guy goes, you're under arrest. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? You're under arrest. You can't have this. Oh, shit. And I'm like, all of a sudden in my mind, I'm like, oh, shit. And you're in Africa. I'm in Africa. You're not Africa. in America. I'm, I'm like, how do I get a hold of the embassy? How do I? I got the only one. My, yeah. my, I got my cell phone. Thoughts are going a million yeah, miles. Yeah, I'm just like, like, what attorney do I get a hold of? I mean, how, yeah. what, what's this happening? Because they're getting the cuffs out of the drawer. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. What, what do you mean I'm under arrest? He goes, well, where's your permits? I go, they're with the police department, your, your police department with my guns that are being checked in. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't have this shell. I go, keep it. It's empty. It's pointless. I, I, I can't use it. Yeah. Well, you, the law says you, uh, proponent says, so we're balanced back and forth. And so he starts to ask me questions. What were you doing here? I'm like, I was hunting. It was my honeymoon. Oh, you got married? And I'm like, yeah, I, I just got married. Yeah. Well, where's the lovely wife? And I go, she's probably freaking out right now. Yeah. Wondering where the hell I'm at. And now I got to figure out how to tell her that I'm being arrested. Yeah. And so this back and forth went on for like, 30 minutes in this glass box trying to oh my God. Uh, figure out how unreal, man, how to get myself out of this. Well, boiled down to, he goes, well, are you ever coming back to Africa? I'm like, hell no. I ain't coming back to this place at all. Yeah. I mean, it's off my radar. I don't want to be done. back here. I'm done. I'm not, yeah. I'm not messing around with this shit anymore. And he's like, okay, well, I'll let you go. And I'm like, thank God. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> come out of there my wife is like in tears like she thought i was gone. done and i'm like it's fine we're we're good we're on our way home we're on our way home get home land uh, we land in atlanta and now i have to declare all my firearms mm-hmm. so you in atlanta when you're sitting in the airport at all the baggage claims they have the glass another glass box that you watch your firearms roll through mm-hmm. as soon as you Back, your your case comes in, you have to declare it as yours and flag them down. And they'll let you inside, and you sign all the paperwork. Well, see, my stuff comes in. We have less than 45 minutes to connect to our flight. Yeah. And we have to reconnect or recheck in on domestic terminal and then oh, go geez. all the way on the tram, all the way over to the other side, the other side of Atlanta. Yeah. And I'm like freaking out, like we're going to miss our flight, yada, yada, yada. So... I'm in a rush. We get in there. I'm like, yeah, I'll sign it. Go to leave that uh, declaration cubicle, whatever the hell you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Can't open the door. Inside or out. They couldn't open the glass door to let me out. So we go. We, they had to radio uh, maintenance to yeah. come in to pop the lock. Oh, wow. So we're standing there like, holy shit. So grab the guns. We're running. We have another security checkpoint. I'm supposed to hand him the permit that I signed. He goes, well, you signed the wrong permit. I'm like, dude, I just came out. How the hell do you think I got my guns? You think they just went in on the baggage claim and I just picked them up? Yeah. He goes, well, you have the wrong paperwork. I'm like, shit. So we go all the way back to the box, oh, try to get those people's attentions. And they're like, yeah, we ran out of the paperwork, so we're just having to sign this pad. And he's like, 
they started arguing. And I'm like, can you guys figure out what you need to do? I, I got to go. go. I got to go, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they let me through. I check my stuff in. We get through security. And now we're running through Atlanta mm -hmm. to get to the airplane. We board the airplane with 12 minutes to spare. Oh, wow. Get all checked in. All of a sudden, they delay our flight. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, man. No, really? <laughs> yeah. All that stuff, all that yeah. headache. And I was like, I just want to get home. I'm not I'm not doing this anymore. Just right. get me home. That's so funny. Oh, it was, it was rough. So you just get back to the U.S. You're coming back from Africa. Did, when you went to Africa, did you get Euro mounts? Did you get... I actually didn't get anything mounted. Really? So you uh, just left it all there? I left it all there. Um, we took a lot of photos. One, I didn't have a house big enough to support everything <laughs> and in all actuality i mean i i just to me i rather mount something from north america yeah and basically what the whole hunting in south africa the mounts all that is is that's their economy yeah and their their if their regular mounts their their tanning methods are very primitive uh -huh. They're still using what we call piss tanning um, and the curing of the hides. I mean, you get a lot of hair slip on them. So what a lot of guys do is they'll do like a wet cure mm -hmm. and then ship them, have the hides and everything shipped to um, ship to their taxidermists in the States and have it them do it. Have and it done my taxidermist said I could have done the same thing. But it was going to cost me a small fortune to do it. Yeah, to me, like, man, a year amount would be... Yeah, and I just... Yeah. It was, to me, a mount is saying something that you accomplished. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I got my Elks mounted, I got a Buffalo mounted, I got a few mounts in the house, but those are the things that I, I accomplished on my own. Yeah, your Buffalo. Like, and to have something from Africa, another continent, to have in the house, yeah, it'd be cool, but... Like I said, it was didn't crazy. really feel like that was a it, DIY. It wasn't something I accomplished. It was something yeah. I experienced. But to me, it was just, it was, yeah, it was just like too easy. I mean, the. the it was the, a canned hunt. It was a canned hunt. I mean, yeah. on the warthog, the two warthogs I killed, killed one the first day we were up there. And we saw this big boar walking across the field. And me being an old pig guy. Yeah. And I'm like, let's get closer. Let's get closer. And mm -hmm. my PH was looking at me. He's like, no. Um, just shoot just it. Just shoot it. And I'm like, let's play. Let's have some fun. Yeah. Like, let's challenge oh, ourselves. You're all, I'm here to hunt. I mean, I'm I got a hunt. Hunt. wind mag that I can reach out and touch this thing. Let's yeah. let's see how close we can get with it. I want to get close because yeah. that's the challenge itself is getting into their wheelhouse. Yeah. Manipulating your surroundings. To, and, to, to be able to be successful. Exactly. In, and in the challenge kill. myself. I mean, I can shoot 100 yards. Anybody can shoot 100 yards, but yeah. can you get within? Can you get to 50 exactly. without spooking it? Exactly. You know, or like, 40 or I'm 30? Like, the wind's blowing in our face. The yeah. sun's in our back. What better conditions can you have? I yeah. Mean, yeah, the Warthog has a little bit better vision than the, the, the European board, but yeah. you got everything in your advantage. Let's right. get close. So what? We, and two, what talking about that is like we were talking about that my second elk that I ever killed, that yeah. bull elk. I spotted it at like two thousand yards. Yeah. And I crept within eighty yards to shoot it. When I had a plenty of shots at three hundred yeah. and two fifty and two hundred, you know, but like 
like you're talking, man. And like I'm, I'm gonna, I'll admit that for me to try and get 80 yards to an elk during rifle season is probably the <laughs> dumbest thing you can do on the planet if you're really trying yeah. to shoot an elk. But you know, it, it, you know, it's that mental challenge, dude, yeah. and it's that mental drive that we are thirsty for. And that's part of the experience. Yeah. And that's part of yeah. becoming a better hunter is testing yourself. Yeah. yeah you have a cushion. You, you know your effective range. Yeah. Why not see what could be your? How close can exactly. you get? Exactly. I mean, I've yeah. been I've been on a hog hunts with clients. I mean, our. Our model was we'd be 150 yards or less. Yeah. If we couldn't guarantee a shot at 150 yards, he would come back and hunt on us. Yeah. So that pushed us to be a better guide. And being a guide and trying to hunt for two people, basically, yeah. it's tough. Yeah, well, because it's not just yourself that you're in control. I know. You have to keep the client who may so or may not have, really know what they're doing. You have to doing. know every limitation yeah. that is possible out there and then try to capitalize off of, the, uh, off of something that already has the advantage yeah. on you. Right. So, it was, I just look, I kind of looked at my pH and like, I'm going to guide myself on these, on these hunts if you can't put it together, <laughs> right? And so, we were... <laughs> We snuck into about, uh, I think I was 60 yards yeah. when I pulled the trigger. Yeah. Dropped him in his tracks. The pH looks at me and goes, that's the closest I ever stalked a warthog. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> He's like, we never stalked a warthog that close. Yeah. I'm like, okay, whatever. Yeah. I mean, it, did, it was like no sweat off my back because I've been within 10 yards. That's what you're shooting for. Yeah. Yeah. And so the second time we go to sneak uh, to kill my, uh, my second warthog, I'm like, let's just get out and walk. Let's just, I'm tired of driving around in a Jeep. Drive let's, around to see one jump out. Yeah, pop. exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and I said, let's get out and let's, let's push their bets. Yeah. He's like, well, you never done that. I'm like, well, I mean, you know where they're bedding down. Let's just start working their beds and see if we can't find one. So he's in front of me. I'm behind him. Or my wife's behind me. And we're, walking through this thatch grass that's six foot tall oh god but you can see through it mm -hmm. and so he's he's kind of navigating through there and we're following and also we come into an opening and all of a sudden i look over my shoulder and out of the thatch grass comes two baby warthogs running right at my wife mm -hmm. and i just look and i look up and all of a sudden there's a boar coming out of his den mm -hmm. out of his burrow and i just wish my wife freeze well, if you ever met my wife, she's a little over-exaggerated in her movements, and so she freezes like this, right? No. These two baby warthogs walk up to her five feet away from her, start sniffing at her, and she thinks it's the cutest thing because she watched The Lion King and thought of Pumbaa, and that was her yeah. greatest thing. Yeah, baby one. warthogs. Baby man. warthogs. And she's like, I'm looking at her, and she's trying not to start laughing and smiling and giggling out. I'm like, just shut up. Don't say a word. Yeah. <laughs> she's in this whole, like, over-exaggerated freeze frame pose while I'm waiting for this board to pop up out of this den, because all we see is his head poking in and out and everything. Yeah. And sure enough, he gets up. I get my crosshairs on him. We're 40 yards from him. Smack him. He spins around. They're tough animals. I mean, I shot him with a uh, six at that at 40 yards. Yeah. We trailed him for a mile and a half. Holy shit. Finally found him, put another round in and dropped him. But yeah, I mean, two good placements and he just yeah. packed off with them. Yeah. Um, but he's... PH goes back to the cab and he starts telling him, man, we were 40 yards from this pig on stock and everything. He's Jack. He's Jack because they, 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 don't, they, do they don't do that because yeah. most of their clientele don't want it. Don't need to. Yeah, like, they don't care. Let's 
it's all about the challenge for me when yeah. it came to that. And right. so for me, going back to Africa, wasn't a big deal. Wasn't a big deal. I mean, it, it was it was neat yeah. to experience all of it, everything that I saw in South Africa and on the ranch yeah. and the animals, but. Yeah, to have something mounted and on the wall. I just, yeah. I'd rather have it in a book and memories. That I can so, share. now you said you killed three bull elk. Yep. One of them's a tule elk. Or is that four? I killed four elk. So, four elk. Yeah. And a buffalo. And a buffalo. And how many deer have you killed? Just one deer. Just that one in the rice field. Mm-hmm. So, I want to talk about the buffalo, but I want to hear about the tule elk. Okay. Because that was an endeavor. Like... That's, that's, I think, as a Californian, that's everybody's goal. That's everybody who wants an elk slam's goal is to kill a tule yeah. elk. It's, bar none, you have to have a tule elk if you want the elk slam. Exactly. And the only place that you can get the tule elk is California. in California. Yeah. I'm obsessed with tule elk. Oh, they're beautiful. I animals. love them. I know, your photos are awesome. I, I love mean, them. You, no one, no one, I mean, I appreciate what you do as far as your photography goes yeah. on, yeah. on getting them on the coastline because no one... No one can experience that. I mean, there, yeah. there's only one place in the world to experience that, and that's right in your backyard. Yeah. So to capitalize off that is incredible, and then to share that is just even... Just yeah, well, I mean, like, where the Thule elk are, yeah. fifth generation yeah. from West Marin. So yeah. my grandmother was born at the Point Reyes Lighthouse. Yeah. So that, like you said, that's my backyard. Yeah. And, you know, I go out there, and I have memories of my grandmother, and I have memories of my grandfather, and, you it's know... It's incredible. Yeah, it's, for me, and it's, it's a whole incorporated experience, yeah. which is... Part of the reason why I started going out there, and I started going out there with the tule elk when I was 16. Wow. You know what I mean? So now we're talking, I'm 33 now, so yeah. you know we're getting up there in 17 years of, yeah. of going out there and screwing around with those things. So it's, <laughs> for me, I just, you know, and it's, I have that same drive when I go out there. It's like, I'm not hunting with a rifle, I'm hunting with a lens. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's been out there with me when I, because I'll take people out. I got no problem showing people, you know, where I go and what I do out there. And uh, people laugh at me because, like, I'll hook around and then drop down and I'll get on my belly with with a camera and a lens. And I'll belly crawl for two, three, four hundred yards and get within 15 yards of these tule elk. Yeah. Because, like... I want, you know, closing that yeah. distance, you know what I mean? That challenge, yeah. like, which is super, super fun. But so you started Thule Elk Hunting. You had an opportunity. So, like I said, I've, I've over my careers <clears throat> of being in the hunting industry and doing what I've done, I've had some great connections and made some great friendships. And one of the friendships I made was teaching a one of the members of the club pretty much out of duck hunting his boys. Yeah. So unbeknownst to me, I mean, he, he called, he, he said, Hey, you want to go hunt tule elk? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Cause he owned a piece, a piece of property in South San Bernardino County and he had the PLM program. And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. I mean, but you don't have to do this. I mean, I'm not, I, I mean, it's, he goes, no, I want you to come and, Hunt tule elk with me. Yeah. So it took us three years. So he, until I got a chance to add a tule elk on this ranch. And he's got a big piece of property. I mean, it's it's not small by no means. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to kind of leave everything kind of anonymous on this. But yeah. Um, so 
kind of they're like real quick trips type mm -hmm. of deal because it's, it's just one of those things like when they're in there to get in there and and see if you catalyze them because they're they're constantly moving between ranches and ranches and ranches through that whole area yeah well it's all private it's all private well there is mm -hmm. some blm land but they're not on that blm land because it gets so much pressure from uh, everything else. everything else all the pig hunters in that area and, and the poachers and everything it pushes the the tule oaks onto the privates which is actually smart in one aspect because you can protect them a little bit more those yeah. landowners protect the, that herd even though they are capitalizing off the PLM program yeah so three years in the making it yeah. took me to get an opportunity on a tule oak and well, it was with a rifle so what I like about that is the persistence, right? So you're talking, it took you three years and so many people are so of this mindset that like, if you hunt private land, you're guaranteed success. Yeah, there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee success when it comes to hunting at all. Yeah, you mean, know, whether it's public or it's private, the, you know? The, 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 like I said, going back to my, my fortune of, of being connected in the industry and having the opportunities hunting private is is still you still have to hunt the animals you yeah. still have to work on nothing was guided none of my private land yeah you hunted guided. it just like diy public yeah. land the thing that, that took the 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 probability of being successful up mm -hmm. was the fact that you wouldn't have unnecessary public pressure yeah and Unfortunately, the state of California and in a lot of these big Western states, you're starting to see the pressure develop even more on public lands. Yeah. It's making it difficult. Yeah. Uh, it's it's forcing guys to do tactics that might be unethical mm -hmm. and because they want the quote-unquote status of killing, killing an animal, putting, up, putting something on the ground. Yeah. Well, it's like the guys who quote-unquote claim they shot over my head this year in Utah, you know, because I... Two guys walk up and say they shot my buck and they're the reason why it was dead and oh, that I didn't Jesus. shoot it. Yeah. And that's like that's what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, quasi maybe unethical. Like I would I was never raised or taught shoot over someone's back. Oh, if you yeah. see someone in the field in front of you, you don't you you hunt the other yeah. direction. Yeah. You know, so So yeah, the Tule Oak hunting public ground is would be is a challenge just as much as hunting private. Yeah. Um I just, like I said, I've had some opportunities and, and the good fortune of... Met you took them like anybody else would Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you you only get a tule elk, once, a chance at a tule elk once, once you're in alive. Life. And I actually know a gal that took her 14 years to draw the San Luis elk tag. Mm -hmm. And she ended up killing that elk on private land. Yeah. Let's just face it. Private land actually is... Better land in most sense than most public ground. I mean, yeah. that's the reason why it's private because it was a good piece of property. Yeah, they protect their animals, they protect their assets, they 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 take care. Will it cost some people? Yes, <coughs> it will cost you some to hunt on private. <coughs> um, but she was. It took her six days mm -hmm. of hunting to finally put a tule elk on the ground. Fourteen mm -hmm. years in the making, and it took her six days of hard hunting. Yeah. To find them well you know and, and <clears throat> going into california elk hunting i went on an elk hunt with my dad not this season but the season passed so it was at 2017 mm -hmm. right for rocky mountain elk 
my dad sealed the deal on his bowl Saturday afternoon before the season closed. Wow. So, and I, I got with him opening day, and him and I hunted Wednesday to Wednesday, because it opened on a Wednesday, mm. I believe. Never, I mean, every time that there was an opportunity, there was an obstacle that prevented the opportunity, yep. right? So in that 10 days, we had three different opportunities on Phenomenal Elk, and none of them were success, yeah. right? And the kill of the animal. And I had to leave Wednesday, and my dad went out completely discouraged, you know, after how many ever, eight days. Yeah. You know, still having just a couple of days left of the season. But, you know, he stuck it out and he finally got it done. So this gal had done it six days and she had gotten it done. Yeah. You and know. It was, and she almost was about ready to give it up. Yeah. Because. I how mean, frustrating is that? It, no one can imagine how frustrating it is until you're in that position. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, 14 years took her to draw that tag. Yeah. And. It's no joke, man. Countless amount of money spent. Getting trying. drawn for California for elk tags on well, any elk. elk. Just a tule elk tag alone, there's there's only a half a dozen units that you could actually hunt tule yeah. elk on public ground. Yeah. Everything else is is, is pretty much... Pay to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, it's just, it's a, it was a blessing, and I couldn't be more thankful for the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great bull. I mean... He was he uh, it was a late late December bull, so that was right after the rut, and they've been breaking off. And he he wasn't the biggest bull in the group. Yeah, he was the second one. Uh, the bigger bull just never gave me a an opportunity. Shot. Yeah, and I think I snuck in. We spotted him about a half a mile away. We got in a position. I snuck in. Once we started the hike, we were about six hundred yards below him. Mm-hmm. And we closed the distance. I think my shot was right at uh, 180. Oh, wow. 200. You closed the gap. I closed the gap. Yeah. And, I, and someone goes, well, how come you didn't shoot him with a bow? I'm like, well, when you have less than 24 hours to try to get it done. And they're not in a rut. And they're not in a rut. And you've got a pretty big open country. And you only have basically one opportunity at this. Yeah. I'm going to capitalize off it and take my rifle. Yeah. If I had multiple days of hunting, then yeah, I probably would have considered maybe trying maybe with, with it. But it's one of those things where you kind of have to weigh the, the factor of, will I ever get a chance at this again? Yeah. Will I ever get And you're three years in. I'm three years in already. And so I just made the decision. And yeah, I, I kind of played back and I'm like, yeah, I, I could have probably got in within 80 yards. Yeah. But, but why? Why? <laughs> I mean, I got... <laughs> if it. your effective range is 300 and yeah. you're at 180, yeah. who the fuck cares? And uh, You know what I mean? If someone wants to judge somebody else off of putting in hard work and closing the gap, I mean, in my opinion, fuck them. You yeah. know what I mean? It's... To me, it's like, if you're comfortable, right? Yeah. Like... My elk that I shot this year in Montana, right? It was roughly 500 yards. Yeah. I got as close as I could to that elk. My my comfortable range with shooting long distance on a perfect day is about 750. Mm-hmm. So I was in tight of my, my comfortable range that I'm willing to shoot. And 
to me about 500, I felt pretty confident with where I was shooting and what was going on, the weather conditions yeah. and everything else that I had on the mountain. Could I have maybe tried to get closer? Absolutely. If I would have gotten closer with two days left to hunt, could I have blown that opportunity and not harvested that animal? Absolutely. And I didn't want to risk it. Yeah. Right. And that's, it kind of sounds like that's the situation yeah. that you're describing. I, I, just, I called it and I'm like, God, get I'm it. Not gonna, I'm not going to push it. I, yeah. I mean, like, they're calm. They don't know that I'm here. Why so blow why the opportunity? Like being greedy or anything. So trying to show off for yourself. Exactly. <laughs> so there's there's which a, sometimes there's, we can yeah, do. Yeah, and there, there's a balance as a hunter. We have to kind of balance that out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's times where yeah, let's play around with this a little bit more. Yeah. And there's other times like we better capitalize off this moment and and hope for the best. Yeah. And and, and make it make it effective. And so I I chose to not push it any harder mm -hmm. and made a clean shot of course we're shooting copper so i mean that was on those that shot is all shot placement mm -hmm. that bullet entered and went out the same diameter mm -hmm. and uh he walked about maybe 80 yards and laid down and put his head down mm -hmm. and uh yeah loaded him up and went back and it was I was on a new level. It was a done deal. It was a done deal. and, and So you've got a Rocky Mountain and a Tulio. I've gotten three Rockies and one Tule. And and you're one day going to be looking for your Roosevelt. Yeah. Are you going to look in California? Are you going to look in Washington? To, I'm hoping to do California. So you put in for that tag. I put in for that tag. I'm, I'm purposely putting in for those tags. <coughs> um, I don't know if I could probably draw it in the next two years, maybe in the next... How many Four. points do you have? I think oh. I got six or seven. Oh, it takes more. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, 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 yeah. I'm, 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 I'm kind of like wishing, like, if I get another, Woo! Let's yeah, get another four more points on there, I might be able to sneak in there yeah. on, on the the probability. But I think probably in the long run, I probably have to be in Wa Oregon or Washington that I yeah. might finalize my my so-called slam if you want to, if yeah. you want to consider it an elk slam but and are you doing euro mounts you do full shoulder mounts uh or? so on on two of my rockies because my third rocky was a management bull on that ranch mm -hmm. um both my rockies were euro mounts yeah turned out great my tule elk i actually did a pedestal wall mount really so i had my taxidermist uh, Grady Miller, if anybody's in the North Valley and wants a great taxidermist, Grady's the man. is the man. That guy is incredible, uh, fair, He's just and he does a great job. Yeah. Um, so I told Grady I was kind of wall space limited. Yeah. And I told him I wanted to try to do a pedestal shoulder mount, uh -huh. but have his head turned sideways. Yeah. And so I don't have a picture of it. I should have probably, I'll, I'll take a picture when I get home and send it to you. So he's on my wall, pedestal mount, modified with his head turned, looking into the roof. Oh, that's so cool. So, yeah. And his hide, like Grady goes, he goes, ah, oh, his hide's a little screwed up. And I go, well, he just got done with a rut that's, you can see Just got all, done fighting. All fighting. And, I mean, a, a Thule elk hide is a lot different than a Rocky Mountain elk uh -huh. hide. They're a lot lighter, they're, because they blend in with that, that, the, 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 the brown nose. brush. Yeah. yeah. Where a Rocky's really dark, really kind of got that distinct tan and, and brown line. Yeah. Where Tule Elk, kind of, kind of blends in. It's kind yeah. of highlighted. And it was an awesome job. I mean, Grady did a great job with it. and uh, He's got some character because he's kind of broke off on a 
couple of his times, but mm -hmm. not completely. And um, yeah, it was. He's a cool bull. I mean, I look, I sit on my couch and look at him every day, and just like still in awe that I had the opportunity to yeah. do that, and grateful for it every day. Yeah. And so, how'd you get into doing a buffalo hunt? <laughs> so, going back to the opportunity I had uh, with my connections was. Um, that ranch that I was hunting the uh, the Rocky Mountain uh -huh. elk on in, in uh, central eastern Oregon. Uh, we were in that fossil unit. Um, there is a wild population of buffalo. Yeah. Um, back in the 70s, a rancher decided he was going to try to raise buffalo in Oregon and for commercially. Yeah. Well, buffalo and fences don't get along. Everybody knows that. Right. They got out, started reproducing like crazy oh wow um so there is a wild herd up there they've kind of got four or five different groups now kind of roaming that whole uh fossil unit between mitchell and john day yeah um so in the state of oregon a buffalo is not is not a considered a native species yeah they're considered livestock okay so all the ranchers in that area want them off their properties because one, they run the elk herd off, they run the mule deer population. They just they're devastating yeah. to to that area because it's like our equivalent of pigs, correct. sort of. Yeah, and there's actually some pigs in that area. Come to find out. Oh wow! You know, I thought the same thing, but yeah. Um, so it was my second time up to Oregon, and I stuck a great bull. Lost them though. Mm -hmm. So, but found him two days later, the meat was already spoiled, but I recovered the head, punched my tag. Yeah. I mean, I'm just that type of guy where, I mean, I that's it. Uh, that's it. I mean, yeah. as an ethical hunter, I was more sick about the fact that I lost the blood trail. For two days. For two days. Yeah. The crazy part was about it, I walked by him. Multiple times. Twice. Yeah. But he was so piled up in this dense brush. You ain't I would see him. And yeah. there was so much elk track and everything through that sign, but no distinct blood trail because what ended up happening was I punched through a rib uh -huh. and then it resealed on me. Yeah. And he bled internally. Yeah. And it was like it just it killed me. Yeah. So needless to say, we were we were hunting, I was hunting with one of the other guys. We were trying to get him on an elk. And so I was kind of his backup. Mm-hmm. Um but the ranch owner wanted me to pack a rifle around in case we ran into uh, buffalo or situation. I mean, there, there's been some mountain lion issues on this ranch and everything. So yeah. kind of protecting ourselves in case of, of something happening. Well, we're making these pushes and, and we're working a couple drainages. And all of a sudden, we, we're working out of this drainage and I hear this big ruckus. I'm like, what the hell? I mean, you hear hooves like crashing through rocks and trees. And I'm like... Son of a bitch, the you know, elk were just right there. They just busted us, right? Mm -hmm. I'm checking the wind. I'm like, there's no way. I mean, the wind's in our favor. Come up. It was the buffalo came through and pushed some elk out of the area. Yeah. <laughs> so we're standing there. We're about 200 yards away from the, this buffalo. And we can see him. He's grazing <clears> out on this top of this plateau. <laughs> we're arguing back and forth. Who's going to shoot a buffalo? Mm -hmm. And we killed one the day before. Another guy stuck one with a bow. A yeah. Small, small bull. About a two or three-year-old bull. And he got, he looked at me, he goes, well, you go shoot a bull. I'm like, 
oh, I really don't want to mess with it right now. And he's like, and this has been going, we're back and forth for like 20 minutes watching this. Trying to figure trying it out. Trying to figure out who's going to pull the trigger on a buffalo. And I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll do it. And he's like, which one are you going to shoot? And I'm like, I'm going to shoot an eater. Yeah. Because I want some meat to take home because I got a newborn on the way, right? Yeah. And then I'm, I'm about filling the freezer, just now about putting something on the wall. And... I'm looking at there and I'm like, oh, that one's not bad, but they're all kind of intermingling. So I'm sneaking in. I'm trying to get close. Yeah. I get within 60 yards of the herd. And there's this buffalo, this bull. He was about the size of a minivan. He looked that damn big. Oh, wow. There, it was massive. It was impressive just being that close to Yeah. Him. And I'm like, all right. Oh, there's a decent one right there. He's a little bit smaller. And he's kind of out of the herd, and the cows are kind of meandering. I'm like, I just don't want to punch through and kill two of these suckers by accident, right? Yeah. So wait till he got out of there. And he's got nobody around he's him. He's got nobody around him. Get a clean shot, punch him. He kind of just does, just humps up, like takes it. I'm like, oh man. I'm like, I'm going to have to put another one in this guy. So I rack another one in. I'm watching him, and he starts staggering, like waving back and forth. And the herd's already gone now. They're already kind of trotting. Moving away, moving away, but they're—I mean—they're—they're they're kind of more docile at that point. They weren't really spooked. Spooked. And this bull, he kind of starts walking around, and I'm like, "Oh man!" And then there's a bunch of rocks. It's on this big mason. There's a bunch of lava stones and everything on there, and it was miserable to try to hike through there. I bet. And I'm like, "Don't fall off of the canyon," because there was like this box can that dropped off the edge. I'm like, "Please don't go down there," because <laughs> now that he's awake, he's still really big. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, how am I going to pack gonna this get, thing get out? him out of here, right? It's way bigger than well, an there's elk. There's a fire road on top of this plateau. Yeah. This ranch. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, he's making a tourist road. I'm like, go, 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 go. Yeah. And my buddy with me, he's like, you can shoot him again. I'm like, no, I'm going to wait till he gets to the road. Yeah. <laughs> to, before I put one in him. And sure enough, he ends up falling right off the edge of the road. Oh, perfect. And uh, we were able to bring a backhoe all the way up into him. Yeah, and uh, be able to pull them out of the rocks and everything. Oh, that's helpful. But it was it was a blessing on that part, I and mean, that was that's kind of a benefit of hunting some private land. Is, yeah, is you had some access to getting some of the animals out of there. So easier than cutting it up and back. Yeah, because because <laughs> one hindquarter was about 130, 140 pounds. Yeah, and I had to just quarter strap him, but his back straps. I mean, I'm six foot tall, and I his back strap was probably eight feet long. Oh my God! Yeah, it was That's massive. Crazy. It was massive, but I ended up getting him mounted and on the wall because it was it was cool. Yeah, it was cool. I, I want to shoot him. a buffalo bad. I mean, That's it was, something I want to do real bad. I mean, it wasn't like quote unquote hunting wild bison like yeah. in, in Montana or anything, but it it's. I went on a buffalo hunt uh, a month and a half ago. Uh huh. And it was one of the most fun things ever. It, it's. I mean, yeah. and you don't. I didn't appreciate the bison, whatever you want to call it. People, you mm. know, be anal about it if they want. And uh, I never appreciated how amazing that animal is and how magnificent it is in the and quote unquote wild until I was sixty yards they're... from a massive herd of buffalo. Yeah, it, it's and they're just magnificent oh, beasts, man. And beautiful. And it was funny as you think, God, an animal that size, how they get around yeah. in elk country. Yeah. And they do it. And they, yeah. and they disappear. Like, disappear. Like we were all, we purposely went after another group yeah. with another uh, hunter. 
and they just disappeared. Yeah. Like, where'd they go? Where'd How they did go? this even happen? Yeah. And so, I mean, they're still a wild animal. Yeah. Uh, even though Oregon State recognizes them as livestock at, yeah. at that point, they're still a wild animal. And it was, it was a neat opportunity. Some of the best meat I ever had. Yeah. Fun time. Too. Fun time. I mean, great memories. Great memories. I mean, it was, yeah. it was an experience. And I mean, would I probably shoot a buffalo again? Hell yeah. I mean, they're, yeah. it's just, it's a neat, neat species of that uh, big game. So fast forward 2018 deer season, you got to go on a hunt. <laughs> A couple hunts, yeah. You, you went out to Oregon. You went up to Oregon. With our buddy from Out West Outdoors. Yeah. And Joey went along as yeah, well. Joey, Joey. That was a, a frustrating hunt from what I understand. So, it was frustrating, but for me, it was also a big learning experience. Uh-huh. So, my thing right now is, is it's not all about trying to kill something. Yeah. I got a son. I want to start learning new areas because yeah. I'm kind of, I feel like I'm behind the eight ball because I did start in my early twenties Yeah, or when I could, because I was pursuing something different in my life. We were duck hunting like yeah. a maniac. Yeah. I was pursuing that and was, my goal was to make that a living. Yeah. And which um, you did, which I did. Yeah. And you and crushed it. Exactly. For 10 years. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if you want to look at a professional standpoint, yeah, I crushed it as far as training dogs, managing the club, just crushing like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And have fun and meeting new people. But yeah, I mean, it was, to me, it was, I'm wanting to learn new areas mm -hmm. uh, so I can hopefully pass along knowledge and the ability. Yeah, to my son, if he's into that. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, he's right now, he's crazy about it. I mean, he's got a little Nerf gun and he shoots the buffalo mount in the house because then we use yeah. the whole stock and everything. So I'm getting that bug started. So my goal is to learn areas where I could take him hunting yeah. and he's ready to go. And California has a lot of really great public land access to but be able to do that. But it's getting crowded. And it's, it's crowded. Getting, and mismanaged. And so it's, it's one of those things where trying to find that little niche area that no one has, mm -hmm. I'm sacrificing... Yeah, not fulfilling the tag because I'm trying new things. Yeah. Um, so you went up to Oregon. Went up to Oregon. We uh, we pre-scouted the area. Dusty went up there a couple times. I met up with them one weekend. And we're, we were going up on top of this ridge line and we were scouting this big bull. And boom, see two nice bucks right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Is that the ones with the kickers? That was what, the one with the kicker. Oh, and God, that's it, such and a beautiful bull. wide three by four. Yeah. And we're like, oh, man, there they are. And so we're, we're, we're taking notes, we're, we're doing everything we can. And I'm like, all right, let's just concentrate on this. And we are trying to figure out if there was any other access into to where they that are. area, thinking we might lock this area up, knowing we're in a public area and it was going to get some traffic from road hunters. Probably. Because they, it was a main road that was being used and everything. Yeah. But... The thermals, and we were trying to figure out the thermals at the time because that was huge. Because if the wind was constantly going into them, yeah, in the morning, and trying to figure out where they're at in the evening, so that way we could play with the wind. So we get up there. Uh, Dusty goes up with Joey two nights before the opener. Mm -hmm. They find the bucks the day before the opener. Mm -hmm. They send me a text message. They got them. I'm in, I'm at work, <laughs> just pulling my hair out. Like I, gotta, I need to get I, there. I gotta go. I gotta go. So yeah. I mean, I 
<laughs> my plan was to go up opening morning, but I'm like, screw it, I'm going up tonight. Yeah. Because if we got these bucks spotted, we can take them in the morning. We're, we're going to capitalize off it and yeah. get some good footage. Yeah. So I haul ass home. I leave work early, get all my gear in the truck, and I'm I'm going up 395, doing 90 miles an hour on that yeah. stretch of the highway, trying to get to camp. So we get up there, uh, get to camp, get a game plan, get up in the morning. Uh, first time I ever met Joey, mm -hmm. um, Dusty. We've we've known each other for a while. Uh, go back to a, when they started running Maven Optics, and we met them first yeah. time we went to Reading. So kind of developed a relationship there. Get up there in that morning. We sit up on top of the bowl. We're glassing, we're glassing. Yeah. We're trying to figure out where these bucks are. Yeah. Can't find them, can't find them. And we start running all the road hunters. Yeah. And we're like, okay, uh, we'll just deal with it. Thinking nobody can still access this bowl. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Oops. fast forward to the next day, go back up, same plan, because we know these bucks are in this area. I mean, they're not leaving this area. Mm -hmm. We just got to find them so that way we could figure out how to get a game them. plan. Exactly. Cause yeah. It's, it was rough. I mean, there yeah. was gnarly brush, a uh, bunch of down trees, heavy rocks. So, I mean, the, the walking conditions, the stalking conditions were not in our favor, needless to say, <laughs> especially with three guys trying to stalk stuff. So we were, we were all trying to coordinate everything, sitting up on top of the bowl. The next morning, I'm like, okay, this is the morning. The thermals were right. The, the temperature dropped. I'm like, we're going to see movement. Yeah. Also, I hit it off in the distance. Needless to say, they found a way into the bowl, and guys are driving around with their side-by-sides right into this bowl. No. Off the road. Off the road. And they, were, they found an old fire trail that went in there. Yeah. And I'm like, damn it. I mean, it, it was just it was frustrating because, one... All you're doing when you're doing that, you're just road hunting, and all of a sudden you just blow out a whole area. Sometimes yeah. it doesn't happen, but sometimes it does. But needless to say, as when you're going into an undisturbed area with no roads in it and a motorized you vehicle, yeah. you're blowing everything you're out. Blowing Whether everything they're out. in there or not, you just yeah. went in and you disturbed that whole area. Yeah. And your odds of seeing something bust out of a drainage that was heavy brushed. Yeah. It's minimal because you got trees, you got everything. Get into a vantage point where you can actually glass a whole area, watch it. it, put it to bed, get a game plan. And Just driving in there is not going to make you make you successful. Yeah. I mean, I see guys that are successful from time to time road hunting. Yeah. But that's not. I would say that's not probably a satisfactory way of hunting anymore. Yeah. But I understand. I mean, you're out there hunting. You're enjoying it. You're enjoying it your way. So yeah. I can't really pass too much judgment along on somebody who's yeah. actually just out there hunting yeah regardless if they're spot stock or road hunting but it just it just it's agitating when yeah. you have a game plan and and you're working on something knowing that these guys have no idea that these bucks are in here yeah and then they go and blow it all out so right that's where i go back to being you have to be adaptive as a hunter mm -hmm. you have to change your tactics when that type of stuff and and not get too discouraged yeah um, or worked up and blow up on the other hunters in the field. Because it's just not beneficial to anybody. Because anybody they're doing the same all. thing that you're doing. They're out there hunting, they're just doing it a different way. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't fit your criteria. Yeah, or as methods a and, and yeah. but you can't get you can't get upset with them 
and you can't get up and set yourself. Yeah. I mean, it just it just it just makes a miserable hunt because then you're just kicking rocks and everything yeah. else. But it was it was frustrating um, to do that. Did we ever see those bucks again? No, we never did. <laughs> Gone. Um, but we got on some other bucks. It was like I said, it was tough conditions. It was a new area. Um, I've never hunted it. Dusty's never hunted it. Um, but we learned a lot. Mm-hmm. We learned a lot about the area. We learned a lot about the way the bucks worked up there. Mm-hmm. Um, More ability to go back next year. It's going to get tougher and tougher, though. Yeah. Because the undergrowth and everything is going to be absolutely miserable to try to kill a buck in it, archery-wise. Yeah. Just trying to get to it. Well, I was looking at some of those videos, man, and that brush it's in there dense. is thick, man. It's dense. And, and it's tall, too, in, isn't it? And like we were saying, going back to being a archery hunter or a rifle hunter. Yeah. Rifle, we, we would have killed them all day long. Yeah, in there, but trying to get within that effective archery range, ex- range, yeah, and being ethical. I mean, we were we were sitting on those bucks in that video. We were 130 yards away from those bucks. Mm-hmm. They had no idea we were there. Yeah, but trying to get downwind of them and come into them and work into it, it was a challenge for Dusty because he. We, me and uh, Joe were sitting back filming it, and he was working his way down there. And, yeah. And, I mean, he said he got to a point where he couldn't go anywhere. It was just, it was so dense yeah. that it was just stopped. So it's going to be a tough archery <clears throat> unit in the f- near future. Yeah. yeah. But I think you could produce some good bucks if you're really, really patient and work on it. Yeah. Um, that's that DIY public land hunting. Uh, but you gotta love it. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's kind well, of, and that's that challenge yeah. that we've been talking about off and on throughout this whole episode. Is I, I think most DIY public land hunters love misery in some aspect. That's of their life I mean, it, we're gluttons just, for punishment. I know it, it's it's one of those things where you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Mm-hmm. And you gotta keep going back at it. And yeah, just persist. And, so we're sitting here. You got a Maven Optics hat on. Yeah. So you've worked fairly closely with maven or yeah uh kind of represent them on the west coast uh-huh. um been with them for about five or six years now yeah and how long have they they've been around for? about five or six years yeah they're they're pretty new into they're the optics very, industry they're a very young company in the optic industry yeah the owners have been in the optic industry for a while yeah uh, they used to work for a company called Brunton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when Brunton was bought out, they decided to, to leave and go do their own way. Thing, um, and go with the the, the Jason Harrison direct-to-consumer model. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a stellar business model. Stellar business model. And in this day and age, it, it it's conducive with e-commerce and what's going on. I mean, I'm in sales as well now, my mm-hmm. new career, and we're... Uh, a distributor, so we're not a direct consumer or buying from other companies, but it all entails. Yeah. And the work ethics that Maven produces, they're just not a, a direct consumer. They're also a service based company where they're, when you call them, you're talking to one of the owners. Every time I've called them, they've been great. Yeah. And I'm always talking to somebody that's been there for a long exactly. time. Exactly. And they're, they're just starting to hire new guys and yeah. kind of build. I mean, I think they still only have like. I think they're under 10 employees. I think it's like six or seven maybe. Yeah. So, um, I got with those guys when I was still working the duck club. Mm -hmm. Managing that. I saw a post that Jason did on his Instagram feed. 
and I was in the market for buying new optics because I was getting into big game and mm -hmm. being a guide, I knew optics is, is key. Yeah. And now I have money. I mean, I can afford it. Yeah. Uh, back when I was in college and guiding, I could barely afford a pair of Nikons or whatever at the time, but um, or Leopold. Gold rings were the standard back when I was guiding. Yeah. You had Swaros, but no one could afford Swaros on yeah. college budget. But um, I like I never heard of this company, and I'm like, man, there's not too many companies that are dipping anything in Kuyu. I mean, the camel thing wasn't the the the, the selling point. It was the fact that there's a company coming out that's doing the same model. So I'm like, I understand. I dig this. More more value in the product, and that way you're not going to pay the middleman. And no relationship with the customer exactly. that they're able to establish. Service is based around everything now. Yeah. And so I called him up. I talked to Mike for probably an hour mm -hmm. on the phone mm -hmm. and said, hey, let's. I want to demo him. And I said, but can I keep them a little bit longer than the two-week program at the time? And I'm getting ready to go into this elk camp. And he's like, yeah, no problem. And so sent him out. I started putting through the test. Um, I got Nathan turned on to him because he was about to ready to go buy some ELs. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, let's. Well, Swaro just changed their lifetime warranty where it's no longer a lifetime. Or maybe I, didn't just, but... No, they were still a lifetime at that point. They aren't anymore, yeah, though, is what I'm saying. Yeah, they a 25-year warranty, shelf warranty, whatever it is now. Mm -hmm. I know they they really cut back on their guide discount. Mm -hmm. I mean, they wasn't... And people they're willing to work with. Yeah. Yeah. And so... They're throttling everything back. It's, it's weird. Majorly. So, Nathan got a set to demo. I got my set to demo. I was putting it through the conditions and that my plan was was to keep it through elk season before mm -hmm. I made my decision. Yeah. After three weeks with them I didn't turn around and order my, my pair. Yeah. I'm like I'm sold. Yeah. I mean I I had the opportunity to do side by side stuff with them with Swaros and Zeiss and some Lycos. Yeah. And I was like It's great glass. Great glass. I mean I mean I ran that for majority of my hunting seasons yeah. this year was yeah. I, I ran, ran the C series. Uh yeah, I was running yeah, yeah, I think you had a B series and then the C series. Yeah, and which ones? The Elevens. The Elevens are the B twos. So which, I was running B twos, mm -hmm. and then I ran what's the tens? Uh, the tens are the B ones. So unless, and then I, unless you had the C uh, C ones. No, I ran the B ones, B ones. and then I also ran because I ran into a problem uh -huh. with a pair. Where they kind of got jacked up. <laughs> I'm really, really difficult on equipment, <laughs> and. Uh, so then I switched over to the C ones, mm -hmm. and the C ones were what right blew my mind at how amazing right? they were. I mean, I you said the I mean? same thing when I pulled up the C ones. For Comparing the them to what I was using in that same price point, yep, night and day difference. Yeah, well, yeah. You know what I mean? In that same price point, and then when I went when I was using the B ones, I was also amazed the. Ah, the B2s, those are the... Those are the no. I-45s. Which one's the 15s? Those are the uh, B4s. So the B4s, we were using the 15s. The biggest problem I had with the B4s, which from what I understand they've revamped or are revamping, is the eyepieces yeah. fitting on my nose. Yeah. So they, they went with a super large exit pupil. Yeah. And so to get that exit pupil, they had to go larger on the, on the cup size and keep everything kind of that formality. Yeah. Like the, the, the cups, but yeah, it, it's, 
I hear the same thing, but there's also a way that you can look through those 15s. Without having without a Without having to be on your nose, on your bridge. and Because they actually put out a YouTube video here not too long ago after those 15s were released. Yeah. Explaining how the proper way of fitting glass. Because the old school method was to go right here, right? To yeah. your eye cups and then just push in on your bridge of your nose. And that's how optics fade. Well, yeah. these are actually you can support off your, the, the bridge of your nose. Yeah. Where you don't have to go full face into them. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a 50, 50 on those. I have guys that said they loved them. I've had guys that said that if it wasn't for that eye cup, they would not buy them or whatever. But yeah. in the long run, they go, there's amazing. Everybody, every, everything's different. I mean, the, yeah. I mean, swirls have different features. I mean, everybody's yeah. a little bit different. You can't discredit their glass. Their glass is amazing. And it's great glass. Someone goes, well, are you guys going to try to go after... I mean, why do I need to go from this to here? And I'm like, well, you're basically buying the same thing mm -hmm. at half the price. Yeah. I can't tell you not to go buy ELs or if you already have a Or go buy a Vortex yeah. Razor. I mean, do whatever your budget is. Do whatever's going to fit you. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm here to help fit glass to you. Yeah. And to give you firsthand experience and knowledge of what I have experienced over the six years five or six years running the the B series glass. Yeah. And I tell you what, I mean I've I've probably sold over twenty units. Yeah. And just just what I do. I don't go out and physically like solicit people to buy them. Yeah. They come to me and then we do some Ask shows. you and yeah. talk to you and... and but I mean I I put them right next to side by side with Swaros, yeah. Lycus, Zeiss and they hold their own. The B twos, which is what they consider their flagship, I yeah. put those against ELs every day. Yeah. Am I saying they're better than ELs? No, they're not. Yeah. They're, they're side by side comparable. Yeah. And someone tells me, well, I already have a pair of Zeiss or Lycus. I'm like, then you're already set, man. I yeah. Mean, this is for the guys that are coming up that want high quality stuff. Yeah. But don't want to drop two mortgages. Yeah. On a pair of bios. You know, and it's funny, I was looking at, <clears throat> or right now I am in the process of his. Uh, looking at as well is uh those like a rangefinder the, the geovids oh my god if i was to buy dude three thousand yards man if like, i was to buy a pair of range finding binos yeah those would be the ones the geovids are sick um especially as an archery guy uh rifle guy yeah. because the buttons on the uh, is on the proper side yeah that you sit there and click over, you're not having to reach your hand over to click on the left lens to yeah. be able to range find it. And then they got the ballistics in there and everything. Those would be the ones to buy. Leica actually has a very good support, mm -hmm. service support. The yeah. warranty's very good. Yeah. You could call them up, they're Johnny on the spot. Yeah. Zeiss and Swarsky, I will tell you this, I know numerous guys complaining about trying to get stuff warranted and fixed them. I don't know about much about Zeiss, but I know that from a lot of people that I've talked to, Swarovski's warranty and the customer service aspect of their company through warranty programs is is, has gone out the window compared to what it was it's, years it's ago. It's really, really gone downhill to the shits. And then yeah. my, my wife, she deals in the, the medical industry as far as uh, medical devices. She does antibody research for a yeah. company. And they deal with Zeiss lenses. Uh -huh. And anytime they've had to deal with a warranty on the microscope or the lenses, it's been difficult a battle. 
Yeah. And so that's firsthand experience that I know with Zeiss as far as their their service. They still make good glass out there, and they're still a very large industry leader. Yeah. And, and Maven's not looking to, to wipe them out. They're just looking. They're just well. They're just looking to add a new option into the industry that's you know on a different playing field than yeah. everything that's already offered and, on the market and, at a different price point. That's they're, comparable. They're gra- they're grabbing a lot of traction. They're it's it's fun to work with those guys. Yeah. Well, I mean, you look at you know guys from Donnie Vincent and Adam Greentree yeah. down to Dallas Haymeyer. Yeah. Well, you know, all, you, across I mean, the board. A lot of people starting to realize the value that Maven brings to the table. It's just not the glass, but it's also the lifestyle. That yeah. I mean, you can talk to anybody that's affiliated with Maven, the owners, myself, Nathan, anybody that's on our archery staff team. I mean, they're they're down to earth, easygoing people you want to have in your hunting camp. They're yeah. not they're not industry driven. Like oh man, influencers they have to do all this. Yeah. It's well, and I mean, dude, they're in Wyoming, so if they want to get epic photos from people for product. They live in it. Yeah, I know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they could get whatever kind of epic photos they want. So, which I don't feel like I see a lot. I mean, like, of course, through some of their posting and stuff, like, you'll see product shots that they're probably taking. Yeah, but so, most of the time it's not products. But most of the... Well, not only that, but most of the time it's not their stuff out of their backyard. Yeah. It's stuff that people are yeah. giving them. And, yeah. You know, people that are having that lifestyle and yeah. having, you know what and, I mean, and, and all and that. That and their ethics and everything fits around what I believe in. Yeah. I mean, I and Nathan was probably first handful of guys in California to extra, extra, actually ever have Mavens. Maven on things, And then yeah. from what we've been able to provide for them, it's just kind of grown. Yeah. And the connections we've developed and the product we're putting in the, people's hands and just providing service for them. And we're not looking for anything. I mean, we're not, yeah. we're, we're not paid. We're, yeah. we're just... We help them out because they're good guys. They're friends, and you can sit down and have a beer with them and just talk have a about great anything. time. Yeah, and there's no pressure. And so to be able to be, I mean, I would probably say that's the only company that I would say I'm officially affiliated with. Yeah. Even though I'm unofficially not. I mean, however you want to describe yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you will see me. You work with them. I work with them. Yeah. And, and have some opportunities to do some R and D with them on the rifle scopes. That's and, awesome, and dude. It was. I want to get my hands on one of those rifle scopes. Oh, dude, I just, so I just put one on my uh, 280 Ackley. Uh huh. And all I gotta do is just dial my rounds in. Zing. And it's just like. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if glass could give you wood, this glass would give you wood. So, do they have a. Uh, around the eyepiece? Is that just a, a raw metal edge or is there a rubber? There's a rubber, like. Because so for me, I've it's been so long since I've updated any of my optics. I have like a jagged oh, yeah. aluminum yeah, you, you edge. Get, you get your scope ring. Yeah, you, you get scoped. You got yeah, I got a real good one this yeah, year in Montana. <laughs> pouring blood down my forehead. Well, here's the biggest nose. thing is their eye relief is so great on that. Yeah. You don't have to put your eye on your freaking rifle. Dude, that was that was <laughs> Me doing that was strictly like I held my rifle up canted. Uh-huh. Didn't even have Oh, so you, it was all operator error. Dude, it was it was <laughs> well not only that, so like I I've done tremendous amounts of AR fifteen mm-hmm. training and, mm-hmm. and tactical and you know, this is two thousand ten and prior. Yeah. You know, when I was really into like shotgun, pistol yeah, and Yeah, exactly. And Three gun stuff. Rifle training. And when I went to go put my buck down 
I found him at, you know, 20 feet from me and I canted the rifle up and I realized I had another hunter below me down on the other side of that buck somewhere. Uh I didn't know exactly where, but I knew that Anthony was below me somewhere. So my training, right? I get my rifle up and nobody can see this, but I'm standing up and walking around my house. (laughs) I brought my rifle up and I had the rifle canted out, right? And I'm looking down the scope as if I would if it were a tactical AR platform, right? And I have it and I'm strafing to my right until I get a clear, um, shot, yeah. a clear shot where I'm not worried about anything in the background. So I have a solid backdrop yeah, that I'm shooting yeah. into. And as soon as I got it, because the buck's at 20 feet watching me or 20 yards or whatever it was, <laughs> it was fucking right there, right? And I just pulled the trigger and I didn't even think about it until it went wing into my forehead. And I swear to God to this day, I feel like... After it sunk into my into my nose and my forehead, I pushed the rifle forward to dig it out of my skin. Oh. But so, anyways, that's why. Yeah. When I get a new scope, I'm looking yeah. for something well, to protect let, my dumbass forehead. That, that little rubber gasket doesn't protect much if you. It, it helps still, though. It, it'll help. It won't yeah. probably cut as nearly as deep as that. Yeah, it'll still bite you. Yeah. Oh hell yeah. But no, mm. it's it, that. When I got the MOA reticle without the turret system because I've talked to a lot of gun guys and this is probably going to open up a can of words. Yeah. Worms, on, open it up. Open it up. Um, ver- turret versus no turret. I have, I've shot both. I have both. Um, I can see the benefit of, ha- of a turret system. I've never shot a turret system. And I can see the benefit of the MOA reticle now that I'm shooting a first focal plane MOA reticle that holds true. Uh-huh. Uh, n- nothing changes on your magnification. So for guys that don't know what a first focal plane versus a second focal plane is, is on a second focal plane, as you increase your power magnification, your crosshairs never change mm-hmm. with that magnification intensity. So what ends up happening is you have to compensate for what power you're on for each of those, uh, if it was a BDC reticle, right? Yeah. So on a first focal plane, whether it's a BDC reticle or an MOA reticle or a mil dot, it increases, the crosshair size increases with the magnification. Yeah. So your ballistic drop stays the same at every magnification. Yeah, whether you're shooting 100 or 500. Exactly. You don't know your MOA drop Yeah. at whatever distance or your mil or whatever you want to call it. That stays the same through all your your intensities on your magnification on a first focal plane. Mm-hmm. If you did it on a second focal plane, you would have to have a notebook yeah. with all your, your dope, dope for each magnification yeah. to be able to know what where to hold. Yeah. So yeah, as a first focal plane a little bit heavier, it is. Yeah. But as far as convenience, if I told you to shoot my gun and you're shooting out to 500 yards, and I say, hold eight minutes of angle. Yeah. You count down eight hashes, boom, boom yeah. let it rip, right? Good to go. Good to go. If I had, if I told you, hey, um, you're shooting a second focal plane, and we got an animal at, at 400 yards, I'd have to ask you what magnification you're on, and then figure out which dot to hold on. Yeah. So, one, you're taking longer. Yeah. But if you had a turret system, you could turn that around. So a turret system on a second focal plane comes into play. 
but it is also a mechanical yeah. system. And if you know anything with moving parts, yeah. moving parts sometimes fail. Yeah. And that was like my rangefinder this year failing off. <laughs> and so there's 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 pros and cons to each one. Yeah. It it all goes back to what you're as a hunter mm -hmm. feel comfortable with. Yeah. And know what you're going to be effective with. Yeah. So to say, hey, a turret system over a non-turret system, first focal plane versus second focal plane, shoot what makes you comfortable. Yeah. And shoot what makes well, you see, effective. Now, for me, my whole life, I've always, like, I have on a butt of my rifle taped all of my drop. Yep. Right? And I don't have hash marks or I have a crosshair. Yeah. Right? I'm but, zero at 300. At 500, I'm 20 inches high, or I'm 20 inches drop. At 750, I'm about 56 inches yep. a drop. I want to say it's 56. I can't remember off the top of my head. So I've always been like, all right, 20 inches a drop at five at 500 yards. I need to hold 10 inches over the deer's back yeah. at 500 yards, right? So I'm just doing holdover. Yeah. Instead of, you know, looking at at, at hash marks or. Yeah. Any of that kind of stuff. So, like, that's all these new scopes that have been co actually coming out for quite some time yeah. now. But, like, now I'm like, I I need to make that jump into... Make that transition. And I made that transition this year. And yeah. I, and I, and I was fortunate enough to be able to prototype test it. Yeah. Last season and... Help build it. Yeah. I, I mean, they, they pretty much said, go see if you get this thing to fail. Yeah. And How cool is that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, was, I was not expecting it. All of a sudden, I get this package showed up and... Kate calls me and goes, hey, did you get a package yet? <laughs> I'm like, whoa. You're all, actually, I did. <laughs> and so it was awesome. Um, it's just, it's fun to be with a company like that. And uh, yeah. like I said, I, I, to this day, I mean, I, I'm capable of affording good equipment. Yeah. And I see the value in their equipment. I see a value in their business. Yeah. And enjoy doing what I do with them. And, yeah. and they allow me to be part of it and i can't thank them enough I yeah. mean, they're it's a great great small business and they thought of everything ahead and yeah they're growing and i'm excited to see what is to come yeah and be part of and yeah it's uh so speaking of companies working with companies we work with a company called dead eye outfitters mm -hmm. right yeah, and in every podcast we always come up with some jackassy weird random question yeah um dead eye Sometimes helps us come up with questions, uh -oh, but for the most part, <laughs> right? For the most part, they allow us to come up with weird stuff just so they're not on the hook. Because uh -huh. I'll go way off the deep end with some of my questions okay. sometimes. So, if you were to live in the reality of Jurassic Park... Or The Walking Dead. This is this is a Brian's question, isn't it? <laughs> what would you live under? Oh man, Jurassic Park or or, or Walking Dead? I think this is the gen more of a more based on what generation. So you are. a world of fucked up zombies trying to kill you, or a bunch of dinosaurs trying to kill you? I mean, really, that's. I guess Somebody's trying to kill you. This people is, people are trying to kill you yeah. too, I guess, in The Walking Dead. Everyone's trying to kill everyone. So, Well, let's, let's put it this way. I'm going to go into the hunter aspect of this. Both yeah. you, I mean, both are, should be a fairly decent target-rich environment. Yeah. I don't want to eat a person. 
Uh -huh. <laughs> I had to, you have to survive. So you're no hey, Donner party here. Yeah, I'm no Donner party. <laughs> yeah, no, not going to pull that one. Uh, so I'd probably have to say Jurassic Jurassic Park. Park. I mean, that'd be... Hunting velociraptors and T-Rex. Velociraptors, I mean, uh, two apex predators going after with, each other. Would with be Dr. Grant? Awful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would probably have to say that, just because, I mean, hell, you could always eat a dinosaur if you had to, but I wouldn't yeah. want to eat a zombie. Right. I mean, if you want to boil down to that part, but yeah, that's that's a Brian question. That's totally a Brian question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna come after you, Brian. Yeah, right. <laughs> Coming up too. Show season is a foot. I know, I know. I'll right. Probably end up. Uh, we'll probably. I'm gonna be at the Chico show this uh -huh. year, which uh, uh, Dusty Dusty's putting on with Out West Outdoors. So yeah. anybody in the North State that hears this before. The middle part of February, come yeah. to Chico. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll give Dusty the plug. Uh, he puts on a great show. We'll be there with uh, the Maven booth. Uh, Nikolai's going to be there with Dead Eye. A yeah. bunch of local guys. I mean, guys looking for waterfowl trips or anything. Yeah. Uh, swing on by. Um, yeah, it'll be a good time. So, you're a, Calif you're, you're a California cowboy. Yeah. With with some biology background yeah being a biologist educated cowboy you know <laughs> thank you so much for coming on and taking yeah. the time you drove all the way down here to petaluma and i enjoyed it man it dude we had some great, great stew yeah. and we went up to to sportsman's warehouse <laughs> when do we step foot in sportsman's warehouse oh man i try to stay away from some of the shops but yeah it's been it's been you know fun i mean i've never done a podcast and Thank you for the opportunity and thank you for the stew, man. Did you have a wealth of bird knowledge? And it's so it's fun for me because I'm learning. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and I mean, we haven't really touched on the whole I mean There's so, so much, much more. There's so much out there. I mean you could have yeah. like episode two, three, or four or whatever you want to get about again, birds. It's just standard issues. I mean yeah. it's whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. But yeah, I mean it's it's been a hell of a ride and I'm I'm looking forward to passing it on to my next generation I'm yeah like my son and hopefully if i have a son or a daughter here in july pass on with them yeah so it's yeah i'm just riding the wave man keep going keep going i mean just keep plugging along keep learning keep adapting i mean that's right. what we can do yeah and that's what you were talking about in the beginning dude yeah. we just have to keep adapting as hunters yeah I right mean, supporting each other don't beat up on each other i mean right. we're all in the same boat just how do you feel social media has influenced hunting. It's it's the positives and the negatives. It, Feel it, free to go in both directions. Oh man, um, I think it's one. It's like it's a catch twenty two. So, in one aspect, it's promoted hunting. So we got more people getting involved in it because yeah. they want to try something different. Yeah. I think there's a lot of great representatives out there on social media, but mm -hmm. I think there's a lot, a lot more of misrepresentation on social media. Yeah. The problem is, is, is you get the feuds going on all the time on my gear's better than your gear. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And you don't know that person. So yeah. I mean, to pass judgment or to reflect off of something that, you might not know the whole backstory on. Yeah. It, it's kind of problematic. Yeah. Because now you're creating enemies in the same community that we're all trying to grow and develop and and to get out of this shadow of negativity from the anti-group of hunting or the mis- Being the Elmer Fudds. Yeah. And, yeah. and so 
bunch of dumb rednecks running around killing animals for exactly. trophy photos. And, and what I go back to was kind of a, a, a saying, I mean, we have to be stewards of the land. And we have yeah. to be stewards of, of the, the animals we pursue. Yeah. And then we have to be stewards of our community. Right. So what we do on social media, regardless if it was indirect or direct of us, mm -hmm. reflects to everybody that's not part of that community. Yeah. And it, it gives them the image, whether it's a good image or a negative image. Yeah. We have to be conscious of that. Yeah. And as a community, I think we need to... We're under a microscope more oh, so than the so, next guy. So much scrutiny on us. I mean, work, it's a constant battle. Yeah. Well, not only that, I feel like hunting more and more is going in an, a quote-unquote athlete or athletic direction based off of people that are getting more involved in it and looking for other ways to reach out to more And I think bases. that's great. I think that's an avenue that we probably should have been pursuing a lot earlier. <laughs> a long time ago. But it's also, if you think about it, it's there's nothing wrong with about keeping yourself in shape. Yeah. Keeping healthy. Yeah. I mean, the the old uh, image of the guy drinking beer, driving around in his old beat-up uh, Ford or Chevy, road yeah. hunting with the gun rack and everything, that's the image that everybody still has yeah. of a hunter. Yeah. We're not that. I mean, we have very... We have celebrities hunting. Yeah. We have highly educated people hunting. Yeah. We have Democrats. We have Republicans hunting. I mean, yeah. we have a we have a diverse community. Yeah. And to start like bullying each other or, or creating feuds or hate mail or DMs, whatever, whatever you you're call trying it. to exploit somebody on it, it's it's not fair and it's yeah. not it's not something as if we want to progress. Mm -hmm. And to, to shed a positive light, not a negative light on what we're doing, because unfortunately we are the first ones and it's already happening in the state of California. I mean, it, it's, yeah. we're under so much scrutiny because of the fact that they're bringing in politicians into fishing game and setting fishing game regulations and laws over a political belief, not yeah. really scientific. Belief. There's, yeah, you know, and, and we were talking about it earlier is, the problem that we're having with bears in California and even mountain lions yeah, right now I in mean, California. The mountain lion, I mean, it was funny. I mean, there, there's stories of old timers going out and, and trapping lions to do the lion studies. And they're like, he my grandfather used to issue $50 bounties awarded from the state exactly. to the hunter. Cause yeah. my, my grandfather was fishing game warden. So yeah. in Marin County, any rancher that killed a mountain lion on their property was awarded $50 yeah. from the state as state sponsored lion killing. Because the lions are a problem. Yep. And 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 there's nothing, nothing controlling the predators. Nothing controlling the predators. I mean, unfortunately, with urban sprawl and encroachment into these into areas, wild areas, you're taking away from the habitat. Yeah. Which people seem to forget. Oh, and that's the hugest thing. So, like the other day on the news, Sacramento News, they showed a, a, a surveillance camera in a gated community of five lions walking by. Yeah. They're like. We've never, biologists say this never happens. Well, it's happening because we are living in their environment. We're not managing their population. There's, they're not managed and, at all. And what's happening is now they're depleting what their prey their resources. is. So I mean, yeah. if you start looking at the deer population, the deer population is dumping. Yeah. Because one, there's... There's multiple predators not being managed. Yeah, it's including not bears. It's not yeah. hunters doing. I mean, how many hunters do you know 
filled their D3 through 5 tag this year. I didn't. Yeah. I I, I, I ate tag soup this whole season. We didn't, yeah. I didn't kill anything. We I went out, ran into a bunch of hunters. Yeah. Old sign, never saw anything legal. Yeah. Everything's gone nocturnal because they're that's their defense mode. Yeah. That's how they survive. I mean, it's it's becoming more and more of a challenge until we figure out how to manage the apex predators. Right. Well, and then, you know, it's like you go into bears. You know, do we need a spring bear season or do we need to bring back hound hunting the, the, for the, bears in order to hit the quotas? The biggest thing with the bears is the reason why we're seeing more bear activity in communities is because you just hit one, we stop running hounds. Yeah. Most of the hound guys that I knew, anytime they treat a bear, they weren't killing the bear. Yeah. They were just running the dogs. Yeah. Having fun, training the dogs. It's no different than me training dogs for duck hunting. I mean, yeah. we were out there working them. You have to work them to keep them up on to point. Date. If you treat a bear, you're treating a bear. You're having a human interaction with an animal mm-hmm. and, and creating that, that non-comfortable zone. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to try to come in and, and go into South Lake Tahoe and start dumping over trash bins and everything yeah. and tearing up people's yards. Yeah. It, it's the same concept. So yeah. if, if we have urban and human interference with these animals and their habitat, we need to learn how to manage both of them. Yeah. We're in, and, you know, on that note, you know, I mean, I've definitely been on the receiving side of depredation on bears mm-hmm. and killing part of the bear population because they're breaking into cabins, yeah. because they're breaking into trailers, because they're going in and, you know, not attacking then, people, but attacking our lives. I mean, obviously, as we encroach into wildlife, but these are bears that are nuisance. They shouldn't yeah. be doing this. No, it and it becomes worse and worse and bigger and bigger problem. Yep. You know, the longer that there isn't a solution found to keep the bear population under control the further and further we encroach into yeah. wildlife areas. The way I look at it is if, if Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, Washington, I mean, if other states are having a management practice and yeah. it's being successful and they have a thriving population of both a predator and, and prey, prey, Yeah, they might be doing something right. There might be something to that. So, and we, <laughs> we, know, we know Colorado is... is is pretty progressive with there's some of their yeah. game laws and, and their decisions, but they still hunt lions. They still hunt bears. They're allowed to run hounds. Yeah. Why can't California do the same thing? I mean, it, it's and going back, like we were talking about, like some of these kids coming out of these programs. Yeah. Never hunted. They don't have any outdoor, they have no back outdoor education at all or experience. Excuse yeah. me. Yeah. And I want to call them hunters, but at least have knowledge and background. I'm not telling you you have to be a hunter to become yeah. a biologist. Yeah. But at least have some understanding of what the benefits are. Well, the relationship of hunters to conservation. I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty neat and kind of sad at the same time when uh, a couple organizations, nonprofit organizations, take these biology students yeah. out of Humboldt State out of Berkeley, Davis, and introduce them to the world that they're about ready to get into. Yeah. And none of them ever fired a gun, ever set foot in a, in a marsh. Or never owned been a on hunting license. Or never a license, license to hunt. Yeah. I mean, and... They're making decisions they're on what exactly, we need to do. And it's pretty interesting. I talked to a couple of them after a couple of hunts. And I'm like, what do you guys think about this stuff? Because mm-hmm. I've introduced, I've met them at dinners and everything. And they're like... 
we never thought about this. Mm -hmm. We weren't taught this. Yeah. And my aspect is, I mean, I came from a ranching background, going into hunting, yeah. wanting to kind of get into land management, started my animal science background, my biology, never finished, but I, I come from a hunting background and then getting educated on top of that. Yeah is where I look at it. So I have an understanding of what science has to hold yeah. and then what experience has to hold. Yeah. Do I have all the knowledge that some of these guys have? Hell no. Right. I mean, but I have the ability to understand animal behavior, understand the habitat, understand human involvement, and then base my science and my beliefs off of what I'm able to put together and yeah. see firsthand. Yeah. These kids now, I mean, I don't they actually have first-hand experience and we need to expose them to that yeah we need to be educating people yeah regardless of whether they join us or not they need to be educated a proper way so that way our hunting future and opportunities still exist exist yeah right right on all right man. well hey man thank you thank you no problem man. i appreciate your time it's been fun hell yeah Man. I look forward to more. I look forward to seeing his shows too. Yeah, I like I said, I'll be at a couple shows and then might run into the sheep show. I'll probably just be a spectator up there. But yeah, I love going up there. Come on up, man! I got a I got a room, dude. Yeah. So I got family up there, so maybe we'll go and yeah, let's hang out. Family. I'm going up Thursday. You are. Yeah. I'll probably I'll see what day I can get off. I'll probably be up there Saturday. So okay. Saturday, so yeah, right on, man. Well, thanks so much, no and problem, man. you know we'll talk soon. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to the show, folks. If you'd like to check us out online, our website is www.theflipflopguide.co. You can find out all the information you need to have your own flip-flop in your own backyard. We encourage this, and we'd love to see this happening in every backyard across America. You can purchase our sauces that have been cranking out flip-flops from my grandfather since the 1960s. If you had trouble filling your tags this year, we also have available on our website Maui Nui Axis Deer Legs. They're 100% USDA approved and ready for your consumption. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at the Flip Flop Guy. We hope you have a great day. Thanks for tuning in and don't forget to smash that subscribe button.